Hello, and welcome to Humans and Magic, the show that gets up deep and personal with your favorite Magic the Gathering personalities. I'm your host, James Sue. You are listening to episode 97 with Pete Hofling. Pete is the president and founder of StarCityGames.com, one of the largest magic retailers in the United States. I don't usually do this, but I feel that I need to set up the context and background of this episode. You can think of this episode as being divided up into three parts. The first part is Pete's origin story, or I should say Pete's as well as Star City Games' origin story. This is Pete from his life as a child to how he started and created the empire that is Star City Games today. So if you're an entrepreneur or just interested in the history of SCG, then this part is for you. The second part is more about the SCG ethos, the SCG philosophy of creating the events and the live coverage. This is Star City Games evolving from the SCG tour to something that is the SCG con today. So the second part is all about that and also how Pete runs Star City Games as a company. You'll get some insights into that. The third part was a part that we recorded after the recent events, after the SCG announcements about the lack of needing a vaccination requirement to attend SCG Con. And basically, I got Pete back into the podcast studio, the podcast recording room, to talk about the recent announcements and give him a chance to address directly through a conversational format through this podcast, how he feels about everything, how he feels about what has happened, and for him to set the record straight and make some statements here. So that's what the last and third part is about. If you look at the podcast description or go to the show notes at humansofmagic.com, I will put some timestamps there so that depending on whether you want to listen to all of the interview or listen to part one, part two, or part three, you'll be able to navigate the podcast directly because it is quite a lengthy podcast. I think there's a lot of good information in here. You will get a lot of insight into how Pete expresses himself and how he thinks. It is quite a long one. It is one of the longer Humans and Magic podcasts. I want to put the timestamps in there, in the show notes, in the description, just in case you want to you want to jump around. So that's the context for the Pete Hofling interview. A few quick words before we start. You can support Humans and Magic in the following ways. Listen to the backlog of podcasts. Humansofmagic.com is where you can find everything. We're also featured on StarCityGames.com. If you want to follow us on social media, we can be found at Humans of Magic on Twitter and the same name, Humans of Magic, on Instagram. Last but not least, if you want to support the show in an extra way, please visit patreon.com slash humansofmagic, where you can get access to an exclusive Discord and some other perks. The phenomenal music you hear in this episode and every episode of Humans of Magic is supplied by Kupla. That's spelled K-U-P-L-A. Kupla is an absolutely fantastic musician. He's a magic player, and you can find all of his music on all the streaming platforms, including Spotify and SoundCloud. Definitely give him a follow on Twitter as well, Kupla Sound, and uh, tell him Humans and Magic said hi.
Today on Humans and Magic, I am here with founder and president of Star City Games, Pete Hofling. Pete, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, James. I appreciate it. Whereabouts are you right now? I guess it's got to be Roanoke, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Beautiful Roanoke, Virginia. So I've been to Roanoke once as part of passing by the, the, the part of the U.S. where it is, and it's a really... It's a really nice city. Like, can you describe it for folks that may not have may not have been there before? So, the, the okay, yes, absolutely. So, um, the way that I I like to first of all, I mean, I'll start by saying I love Roanoke, but I'll follow that by saying that like I so I grew up in in New Jersey, and where I grew up was basically like thirty minutes outside of New York City, and. Like, unless you're talking about actually going into New York City, which I think you really can't compare to any other city in the world because New York is just such a unique place where there's nothing actually like it anywhere else in the world. There's more to do in Roanoke than there was in New Jersey where I grew up and it's not even close. Uh, so one of the, so some of the things that I actually really like about Roanoke is that it has a, a it has a pretty a, a pretty thriving is is I guess the word I would use. Uh, downtown where there's like a lot of different things to do um you know like there's outdoor like music venues lots of restaurants lots of places lots of bars lots of places for like you know late night hangouts and stuff like that um but you can drive 15 minutes and you're literally in the mountains so you kind of have the 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 best of both worlds whether you like something you know like more uh you know urban like uh like downtown in a in a city and obviously roanoke's not a city the size of you know like what most people think of when they think of a city, but it's it's pretty decent sized. Um, and you've got if you're if you're out more outdoorsy, you enjoy things like hiking and and more like outdoors type activities. Like you've got the mountains 15 minutes away. So I think Roanoke is fantastic. And and there's I can't think of any other place that I'd actually rather be living right now. That's fantastic. And yeah, the one time I passed through, I just remember I had a really nice breakfast somewhere. It was a really nice diner. I, it's it's way better than I guess the the IHOPs of the U.S. It's just like you know they've got these nice. Um, I'm not sure if saying mom and pop is the right way, but like they just have some nice nice places to eat, and it's just like yeah, the mountain stuff is also great too. I mean that's it's just got a a bunch of options, right? And I I feel like people that are at least the magic players that I know who are living there, like they seem to have good things to say about it. So I think that in recent years, like Roan Roanoke's always actually had a pretty sizable um, like restaurant industry. And in recent years, it's, it's just, it's expanded, God, even like significantly. Uh, but one of the things that I, that I'd heard a while back, and I, I don't know if this is actually true or not, but I, I don't, I've always heard that Roanoke actually has one of the highest like restaurants, per, like restaurants to population ratios in the country. Oh, that's interesting. Do you any idea why that might be? Is it just like super friendly to restaurateurs or? I don't, I don't know. And like I said, I'm not even, I'm not even sure if that's actually true, but Roanoke actually has a surprisingly large number of like really good restaurants. Like a lot of them are kind of like hole in the wall places and they're kind of out of the way, but you know, like they're I, I, like, I've had a lot of people actually, um, like actually say like that they're looking for a particular type of food. Like let's say somebody's in town and they're visiting and they're kind of craving 
a particular type of food. Well, it's like, oh, well, if you're craving, Indi if you're in the mood for like Indian food, I'd recommend going to Nawab downtown. If you're into, if you're looking for like Korean food, you might want to check out Wanju, which is right up the street from our store. And a lot of times people come back from those places and they say that those places are actually amongst the, the best types of that food that they've ever actually had. And so I think that Roanoke actually has a lot of places like that. But I mean, you know, when you, when you have so many restaurants, I guess that's bound to happen. For sure. And we'll definitely go into the whole history of SCG during this conversation. But because you mentioned it, I want to know, like, you grew up in Jersey. So describe for me a bit about, you know, growing up there and a little bit about your childhood, like maybe even the stuff that you were, you were doing before SCG. Oh God. Okay. Um, so <laughs> talk about a gotcha question, right? Yeah. No, 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 that, that, that's fine. Um, I, I, I actually responded the way that I did because I've been involved in this industry, like not the magic card industry, of course, because it didn't actually exist, uh, when I, when I was a child, but I've been involved in this industry in some way, shape or form since I was like 14 years old. It's literally the, the only job that I've ever had in my entire life outside of uh, washing dishes for a local pizza place when I was around 13 years old. I'd wash dishes um, basically for like 20, I think the, the guy paid me like $25 under the table and gave me a free pizza. But I just had so much fun working at the place um, that I was happy to do it. And for a kid my age, that was actually a pretty sweet deal. Uh, but But aside from doing that when I was 13 years old, I've literally not, I've never done anything else other than work for myself in this industry some in some way, shape or form. Um, so, but anyway, to get back to your question. So I, I grew up um, when I was, when I was much younger, I grew up in Maine, but you're taught like we're talking years that I just barely even remember. Uh, my family moved to New Jersey when I was relatively young and I spent the majority of what I would consider to be my childhood just moving around from town to town in, in New Jersey. I think we lived in, in five different uh five different towns overall but like literally every single town like all five of these towns were within like 10 miles a 10 mile radius um and so we just we just actually moved uh from from town to town and so the experience was pretty similar in, in each of them so did you guys move around because of maybe the job or jobs that your parents had or what what were the sort of the reasons for moving around I, I think the catalyst for our moving around as much as we did, but yet staying in the same general area was just because when when I was younger, my family just my family struggled struggled financially for years. My dad had a uh, like a small two to three person construction business and and I don't I don't know if you really kind of know much about how that type of thing works, but uh, it was pretty much like either feast or famine. Like if he had a couple of of, of good jobs lined up in a row, uh, then things were fine. But you know he would have a couple of good jobs lined up in a row, and then all of a sudden he would go a month without having any work at all. And so and so we just we struggled financially throughout the majority of my childhood. And I think that that was probably the primary catalyst for us moving from or moving uh, for as frequently as we did during that period of my life, but yet always staying in the same general area. Got it. So you were wherever the gig or jobs were available for your dad to take, then, you know, he had to seize the opportunity. It sounds like. 
No, no, not so much because because um, every all five of the places that I lived in New Jersey were basically within a 10 mile radius of one another. And so like for my dad's business, like my dad's business didn't actually move, but where we were living actually just moved from time to time. Like, let's say, for example, um, you know, like we might get into a situation where whatever we were currently paying for rent to rent our house or rent our apartment in one area may have actually gone up. And that would have required, or that would have prompted us or been the catalyst for us like needing to find another place to live. And that other place to live may actually have been like one town over. It was more stuff like that. But my dad, my dad was operating his same business about all five, like while we were in all five of these different locations. Got it. And I guess you got a lot of your entrepreneurial sense from him or inspired by him in some way. I, the, the entrepreneurial sense, no. I've always kind of been wired this way, so I'm not exactly sure where that came from. But what I definitely did get from him uh, was his uh, sense of morality, his sense of ethics. Um, you know, because like there was, there were there were a lot of opportunities for my dad, like with especially with things being as financially difficult as they were, as often as they were, there were a lot of opportunities that my dad could have taken where he could have. You know, he could have shortcut, he could have taken a shortcut on a job and like not like my dad actually took a tremendous amount of pride in his work, which is another another uh, trait that I think I actually uh, that I actually picked up from him. Uh, so he took a lot of pride in his work and there were definitely a lot of people in his industry that would often uh, cut corners. So like, you know, so, for example, one of the things my dad did was like he blew he insulated people's houses and like not. Like he put up the the sheets of insulation that people are more probably traditionally uh, like used to, accustomed to seeing, but he also had this machine that would like like he would drill a hole in the wall and then it would blow insulation into the wall and insulate the house that way. And what a lot of people in his line his industry would do uh, is that they would say that they were fully insulating the wall, but they were actually only like running the machine for like fifty percent of the time that they should have. So it was actually only being like half insulated, and they were cutting corners that way and. And, and cheating their customers that way. And my dad would never, like no matter how much we were actually struggling financially, my dad never would do anything like that. He would never do anything that he considered to be unethical. He would never cut corners. And, and, and I've always been wired the same way for as long as I can remember. I think that a lot of those qualities are ones that I actually learned or, or kind of picked up from, from, from seeing him and, and watching the way that he conducted himself. Got it. And did you have any siblings? I do. I I, I still do. Um, I shouldn't say past tense. Yes. Do you have any no, siblings? No, 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 no worries. Um, so the, re- the reason why I kind of hesitated when you asked the question is because I, I do have a sister and my sister actually lives down in North Carolina, um, just a few hours away from us. Uh, but I haven't spoken to her in over 10 years. And that's more something that kind of has come from her end of things than 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 my end of things or my dad's end of things. Um, and I'll, my dad actually lives with me, like literally lives right up the street from me right now. So, um, so we're we're both here in Roanoke, but my sister is just only three hours away. And for some reason that neither of us actually know, like um, she just hasn't spoken to us in probably well over a decade at this point. I see. Of your family. You're closest to your dad, I assume. Then, 
Uh, I've always actually been closest to my dad, but my mom passed away a few years ago. So at this point, it's actually just my dad and I here in Roanoke. Understood. Yeah. So just going back to your your childhood, you know, you guys were maybe within 10 mile radius of each other, but you were you were in Jersey or Maine and then Jersey. And then tell me a bit more about your what you were like when you were younger. Like you you mentioned your first job, but like what was it? What did you do? Like, you know, all the stuff that you did before you even heard of Magic the Gathering. Just give me a sense of that. Yeah. So so um so I I I I guess I would probably describe myself as a pretty typical kid. Um, you know, like uh, school would get out at three o'clock or three fifteen, and then, uh, like uh, all of my friends and I, we would play football or you know, all sorts of different things. But they all actually involved being outside. And then at a certain time, I forget what time it was. This this whistle would sound, and basically the the whole purpose of the whistle was to like literally let all the kids who were outside playing know that it was time to go home. And I think it was six o'clock when that, when that whistle sounded and it wasn't, it wasn't, it was time to go home to get them off the streets. It was, it was that it was time to go home because that was what time like dinner was. And I think that was actually a very common thing for, for people, people my age when they were growing up. Uh, I think ours was actually called the six o'clock whistle, but I'm not a hundred percent sure uh, on that. But anyway, so, so, I was very much a typical kid in that sense. Obviously, like the the internet, none of that actually existed. So, you know, that was probably a large part of the reason why I spent most of my recreational time outside. Um, but, uh, you know, so I, I always I always collected comic books. And, you know, when I was 13 years old, I forget exactly what grade I was in at the time. But when I was 13 years old, I got that part-time job working at that local pizza place, which was fantastic. Um, it was it was just such an incredibly uh, it was such an incredibly fun job. But one of the things that I actually found one of the things that I found incredibly interesting about that experience that I still remember to this day was that like I was only working there like two nights a week, and the guy who owned the pizza place had four or five other kids my age at any given time that were that were working the other the other nights or, di- or the other nights of the week or on weekends and we were all doing the exact same job and like i it it kind of goes back to what i was saying before where i you know those qualities that i actually kind of picked up from my dad about in terms of like having pride in my work like these were things that i just didn't even think about like i actually just it didn't matter what i was being paid or or any of that stuff. It's like I was there to do a job, and so I did it, did it to the best of my abilities. But apparently, like that, like the, like that was not the norm. And you know, like he, the the guy was constantly just telling me stories about because he, the the guy that owned the place, he and I got pretty close o- over the years because I knew him for a much longer period of time than the time that I worked there. And and he he just told me stories about just how much like how many problems he had with so many of the other kids that just took the jobs because like they just they didn't want to work they just didn't take any pride in their work they would just constantly do things you know he would tell them to do something and he'd have to tell them like 10 times to do the exact same thing because they just didn't care um and i just i couldn't even wrap my head around like how somebody you know could not want to do whatever it is that they're doing to the best of their ability like i just I've never been wired that way and I just couldn't even wrap my head around it. 
But anyway, um, so I, I did that. And then uh, I, I had always been a, a comic book collector and my parents started taking me to these local shows, you know, like a town or two over. They were usually, they, it was where they usually took place. And these were like small comic book and baseball card shows. They usually took place in like Knights of Columbus halls and BFW halls and stuff like that. And so they would take me to those shows and we didn't have uh, like an actual comic book store of any sort, you know, within like walking distance of our house. So like, for, so for me being somebody who loved comic books, like these things, like going to these things were a big deal to me. And so my dad would always take me and I would save up my money for the entire month. And then I would go to those shows and I'd walk in the, the, sh the door and I'd like, just immediately blow all my money on like the first vendor that I saw over time. Like the more he took me to those events, the, the, the more my behavior kind of changed to where I kind of learned that you don't want to spend all your money with the first vendor that you see. You want to kind of shop around, try to get the best deals, try to find specific things that you're looking for. Um, and so then I kind of started looking at things from more of that type of angle and less of the, you know, like excited fanboy type of angle that I had had previously. And I kind of became more interested in the, the business side of things that I was seeing. And like, at one point I realized that, you know, it's like, I didn't have a comic book store in my area, but I collected comic books. So like, there was no place for me to actually get the collector, the collector's supplies, like bags and comic book boards and the storage boxes and stuff like that that I saw all the other vendors using. So I had what I had the, what I thought at the time, what I considered at the time to be a quote unquote brilliant idea that it, well, if I had this problem, surely tons of other people had these, this problem too. And I was gonna solve the problem by starting a company that I called Bag World. And all we was like, we were literally just going to sell these supplies at these shows. Well. It's, as it turns out, the reason why nobody else was doing it was because it was actually a terrible idea that <laughs> that that was one where, you know, like it wasn't actually worth doing. So like I would I would spend all this money and I would buy a table for like fifty dollars and then I would go to the event. And I was probably lucky if I sold fifty dollars worth of stuff. Right. Um, right. You know, and that's not even accounting for cost or anything. And then, of course, I was still doing what I was doing previously, which was taking any other money that I had on me and spending it all buying comic books. So while that idea was that ended up being a terrible idea and it failed. However, I do still have the, the bad world banner that I used to hang in front of my table from all those years ago. I still have that in my garage. So um, but that that idea failed. But that idea kind of got me like I it kind of I kind of got the bug and I got a taste of of being on the other side of of, of things and not being on the customer side but being on the, the the dealer side and so so then I started thinking well okay so this idea doesn't work but if I but obviously selling the actual comic books themselves work I'm sure there's a ton of books that I've of comics that I've accumulated over the years that I just probably don't really care about as much as I think I do at this point. So maybe the next time the show comes around, I could bring some of my comics and try and sell them too. And so I started doing that and, and I did much better the next time when I was actually selling a few boxes of comics as well as the supplies. And so then that kind of snowballed to where 
Then the next event, I brought more. And the next event, I brought more. And then eventually, I started buying collections from other people and, and, and then bringing that stuff too. And then that kind of grew into now all of a, now all of a sudden, every time this convention, the show was coming to town, I was going to this show and I was, instead of getting one table, I was, you know, I was getting multiple tables. And then, you know, just me being wired the way that I am and, and having the work ethic that I have, like I very, I very quickly started, you know, I was probably 14 years old at the time, but I was working these like these experienced dealers who had been in the industry for like 30 years. I was basically just running circles around them. And, I, and, and so I just kept doing better and better and better. And the, it, it didn't seem like the other dealers, it's like, it seemed like the other dealers, they would either have a good show or a bad show or like their, their performance or their sales at the events where just, they started trending downwards. Whereas for me, it didn't matter if there were 50 people in the door or a thousand people in the door. I was always having a good show because like, if it was a bad selling show, I would just start, I would use it to, I would take the opportunity to buy stuff. So for me, I was always having, a, I was always having good shows. And the fact that, that, that I was actually, you know, making much better money at that age or much better money at that time than other kids my age were making um, was actually a, a huge help for my parents being in the financial situation that they were consistently in because my parents actually started taking money uh, like out of my little business to help pay the pay their, their bills or our bills, um, which at the time I hated because you know, like I was wanting to buy more stuff and I was wanting to kind of like grow my business. And I kind of resented that. But in hindsight, obviously, I realized that they only did that because they had to do it. And, you know, like in hindsight, I wouldn't have I wouldn't change a thing. And and plus, you know, like I wouldn't have even been able to do those shows if they weren't helping me load the van up, you know, because like I, they would help me load up our, the van. They would help me drive to the show. Like my mom or my dad would stay with me for the entirety of the show. And then when it was over, they would help me load the vehicle back up and then they would drive me home. That was basically what things were like for a large part of my high school years. Like I was never somebody that, like I was never really interested in partying or, or, or doing any of that stuff. I played football one year, but other, aside from that, like that was more of an attempt just to be social um, and not because I was like passionate about playing the sport. But like, aside from that, my, the majority of my high school years consisted of uh, like me uh, going to school all week uh, and then on, on, and then basically working all weekend and then going back into school again on Monday. And if, you know, if I wasn't, if I wasn't, working at a show that my parents were taking me to, then I was just working on, you know, processing books and processing collections and pricing stuff and, and all of that. And, and so as things progressed through, throughout high school, um, I realized that if my parents were willing to take me a little bit further, you know, actually in some cases a lot further, there were shows that we could be attending where there were, there were more shows that we could be attending and there were also bigger shows that we could be attending. And so they started driving me to places like, um, you know, we never wanted to go into New York City because that was just too much, too much hassle. But like they started driving me to like Philadelphia and Harrisburg and, and Connecticut and, and Delaware and, and a lot of like larger 
markets within a you know a couple of hours of of where we lived and i just i, I continued to just kind of grow my my little business and then eventually i got my my driver's license and i was able to start driving myself and that was when things got like really crazy or at least kind of in what i consider to be crazy because of just the the lifestyle that i started living which was you know like i get out of school on friday I go home, I load up my van, and then I would drive like six or seven hours to like Pittsburgh or, or, you know, like sometimes it was the same cities, but a lot of times it was further away. Like one example of like a pretty typical weekend for me would be come home from school on Friday, load up the van, drive to Pittsburgh, sleep in my car, regardless of what the temperature was outside, because I didn't want to spend money on a hotel, regardless of how cheap the hotel would have been then wake up the next day, set everything up by myself, do that show, break everything down by myself afterwards, then drive another three to four hours to another city, sleep in my car again. And again, like this was regardless of what the temperature was. So like if it was freezing outside, a lot of times I would be like waking up every hour and starting my car and just driving it around in a circle just to kind of get the heater going. And then I would kind of go back to sleep. And this was, this was a pretty typical type of, of weekend for me. And then I would do the show the next day. And then afterwards I would drive like, you know, seven or eight or 10 hours home to back to New Jersey, just immediately crash and then wake up the next morning and go into school. And for, for probably several years, the majority of, the, of my classmates actually had no idea that this was what I was doing on weekends. Wow. And I mean, to, to be fair, it actually, a, a large part of the reason why that was, was because I actually, I was very, I was very tight lipped about it for multiple reasons. One of which is because like, I didn't want people, you know, like I didn't want people that were doing the type of job that I had been doing previously, like, you know, like washing dishes to make a couple of extra dollars or whatever to know that. I, like here I was like making hundreds or sometimes thousands of dollars in a, in a weekend as this kid in high school. Like I didn't want my classmates to, to know that I was doing that. But, but the bigger thing was actually I didn't want my, my classmates to know that I was into comic books because it wasn't cool. <laughs> That's, uh, I mean, as a, as, a, as a teenager or kid, right? You always think about these things. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. And nowadays, of course, you know, like, uh, you know, all being into all of that stuff is like literally the exact opposite. And there's, you know, every, every Marvel movie that's released makes, makes a billion dollars. Right. And all this stuff actually is now considered to be cool, but at the time it was, it was anything but. And so I, I was, I was, I, I was very tight lipped about it mainly for that reason, more so than, than the money, but it was actually, it was actually both. It's also much cooler now these days to be an entrepreneur or to embrace, quote unquote, the hustle. I just think that you had an ungodly amount of self-motivation and drive like since you were very young. And it's just funny thinking about that in, in comparison to people now who, I, I don't know, like they, they work three hours a day and they say it's a, it was, it's a tough day or something, right? <laughs> it's just like, it's so different. Yeah, I I can't even wrap my head around that because I have never been wired that way. And and to be fair, I think a lot of people just are the same way that I am. 
You know, like I know that a lot of people that I've worked with over the years are, are, are just wired the same way and, and they can't wrap their head around, you know, somebody like working three hours in, in a day and then just kind of being exhausted and feeling like they need to like lay on a couch for the rest of the day. Right, right. So, I mean, you, you were doing that sort of traveling comic book dealer lifestyle for for quite a while. So the, how did you go from that to to eventually doing something with magic? Well, so so there there's a lot that actually happens in between. So uh, so one of the things that happened is that uh, so I graduated high school. I decided to go to college for a year and a half because I thought that's what you were supposed to do. And after a year and a half of continuing to do what it was that I was doing, like making more money than many of the adults that actually had gone to college and had college degrees were making at that time, just kind of doing this thing that, that a lot of people kind of thought that didn't understand it, thought was kind of silly. Um, and going to college for a year and a half, I just realized like, like, I don't understand why I'm doing this. Like, this just seems like a complete waste of time for me personally. I'm not saying that it is for everybody, mm -hmm. uh, but I just felt like there were much better, better ways that I could be spending that time. And so after a year and a half of going to college, I, I, I stopped going, I dropped out. Um, and at this point, my, my parents had decided to move to North Carolina and kind of like get resituated and try to like start a, a, a new life because my dad's business ended up failing eventually in New Jersey and the cost of living just got so crazy. They just couldn't afford to live there anymore. And it's only gotten cr even crazier since from what I'm told. Um, and I just kind of moved in with, uh, with a friend of mine and, and, and kind of did my thing while living with him. And then eventually I decided to, and I don't remember exactly why I chose Hagerstown, Maryland. I think I actually chose it because uh, it was very centrally located to everywhere that I was driving to. But I, I moved to Hagerstown, Maryland. I got a little one bedroom apartment and I kind of just started my own new life uh, down there in Hagerstown. And so things kind of continued, uh, you know, for a, a, another couple of years. And then it got to a point where I kind of grew what I was doing to the point where I was like, well, I just don't want to be dealing at these shows. Now I actually want to be running the shows because I had learned enough about how the whole thing worked. And I felt like I could actually do a better job than the people who shows I was actually vending at. And not just do a better job for me, but I, but do a better job for the attendees, do a better job for the other dealers, many of which had become my friends. Um, and so I started doing that and that very quickly grew to, I, I figured out a way to, to kind of cookie cutter that, that one day, I, I wouldn't really call them conventions because they weren't conventions what I was doing. It was more of like a one day a comic book marketplace where I would rent a, a hotel room in a particular city. And then I would send them a floor plan showing them how I wanted it set up. And I would sell the vendor space. And then I would do a bunch of marketing, which was a lot harder in the pre-internet social media days. Mm -hmm. um, I would do a bunch of marketing, uh, but I, it was, it was very successful and it did, it did very well and it expanded very quickly. And I was, I was really, really happy when it expanded to the point where I, I was able to actually approach my parents and say, 
hey, I know that you're doing whatever it is they were doing down in North Carolina at that time, but how about you actually, you all actually come to work for me. Um, I can pay you much, I can pay you better than, you know, more than you're actually making doing whatever you're doing. Like my mom was working at like this, like, you know, out in the middle of nowhere, kind of like chicken hut type place. And I don't even remember what my dad was doing, probably something construction related. But um, I said, I need, I just need the two of you to like every weekend, I'll do what, I'm, what it is that I'm doing with these shows. But I just need one or both of you to drive to the show and be the person on site who's collecting the admission at the door and kind of just making sure that the dealers know where to set up at and just kind of making sure that everything kind of runs as smoothly as possible on site. And it literally, it was, such, it was such a cookie cutter model that it literally just took one person to do it. And it could be anybody. It didn't have to be anybody with any knowledge of comic books or anything like that. So they were, they jumped on that and that actually ended up working out really well. And they ended up being the people who ran all of my events that I was doing in the Southeast United States. And then as things continued to grow, it just got to a point where like literally every single weekend I was in seven different cities on the same day running seven different shows. And then the, then the following week I would do the exact same thing. And I was, do, I was running this whole thing out of my little one bedroom apartment in Hagerstown, Maryland. And that was great. It, it, it did really well. I, I, very, I quickly actually became the largest show organizer for shows of that type in the entire country. Um, but the problem was, was that at some point I realized that the business model wasn't sustainable because the vendors that were vending at the shows actually, they, they were very unprofessional at the time. I think that's actually changed significantly now. Um, but a lot of them were very unprofessional at the time. They were like weekend warrior type vendors who like they lived or died by how, by the success or failure of every single show. And so they, they had no, like the, the, there was no reason for them to, to do anything with a long-term vision in mind. Like everything was just all about whatever it takes to basically make sure I can pay my bill this weekend kind of thing. And that definitely impacts, you know, the customer service, like the products, yep. like everything, right? I can just imagine. I mean, I mean, I guess there's parallels even to to magic these days, right? Like a a stable, long-term thinking retailer versus someone who's doing something for the weekend, right? It's actually it's apples and oranges because the types of vendors that that vend at our events now are not those types of vendors at all. These are actually very- Oh, no, no, no. I, I didn't mean to imply that. They're all they're, oh, they're yeah. pretty long-term thinking and you see the same vendors like weekend in, weekend out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, but, but what, I, what I realized is that because so many vendors at the time had that mentality that there's, that nothing that I actually invested into that business was like that aspect of the business was just completely outside of my control. And if, if, if all of a sudden, all of those vendors basically just kind of wanted to burn things to the ground for whatever reason, I, there was nothing that I could do to, to stop that. And so, you know, it's like they just they, they, they did a lot of things like not in an orchestrated way, but just because of the way that they were just constantly like they needed every show to actually be good in order to pay a bill and the amounts of money that you're actually talking about are very small compared to like 
you know, the way that things work within the, in the magic space, you're actually talking about like, uh, like a vendor booth that a table that costs like $50, um, you know, like a dealer needing to make like $300 at an event in order to pay a $300 bill because otherwise they just couldn't pay it. Like, like you don't, you don't have that, that type of situation with, with magic vendors because they just do it on such a larger scale. And, and so because you had so many of that, of those types of people who comprised your, your dealer, um, like your, your roster of dealers. I mean, there were a ton of good ones, uh, back then too. And, and to no one's surprise, definitely not mine. All those same people are actually still around and they're the ones that actually kind of are still doing it and have gotten even bigger. And those are all great people. But the problem is, is that there were just too many of this other type of dealer. And so I realized that this was not something that was sustainable for the long term, specifically because of that. And so I just basically at some point made plans to, to sunset that, that business and you know, I, I set those wheels in motion. And then at some point during that process, I, I reached out to my parents again down in North Carolina. And I said, okay, like now that we're, you know, now that I'm kind of shutting this one thing down, you know, I, I, I would really like to actually find a place to open a store. And so that started the conversation of, okay, well, where are we going to, where are we going to open a store? And so the way that we, the way that we went about determining where that place was going to be was we literally looked at a map we looked at Hagerstown, Maryland. We looked at North Carolina and we said, what is the largest, most heavily populated area in between? In hindsight, this was actually a terrible way to figure, to pick a city, but this is what we did. And that city ended up being Roanoke, Virginia. And so we said, okay, let's, you, you all come up, I'll come down, let's meet in Roanoke, Virginia. And let's, uh, let's check out the local scene there as far as comic book stores go and see what, the, see what that scene looks like. And as it turns out, Roanoke was actually a very heavily populated city that, in my opinion at the time, was being incredibly underserved by stores that were, they, 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 I don't want to say that they were bad stores because they weren't. Some of them were actually very good, but they were very kind of, their, their business model was like kind of very antiquated and kind of set in the ways that things were being done like 10 years ago. And I just felt like there was a huge opportunity available in Roanoke for somebody with my type of knowledge and my connections and, and my work ethic and my parents' work ethic as well to kind of just set up shop here and kind of, and just do really well. And that ended up not going exactly as I expected it to, but it eventually got there. Very good. So you saw the opportunities just because you were working already at, on things on a national scale. So you know, it, it seems like you just have an eye for identifying essentially new markets, right? Or, or just going into a place and just knowing like there's an opportunity there. Like it's, it's somehow just, I guess it's maybe bred through experience or it's in your blood. Like there's, there's some combination of that, right? I think that that, so, so either I've gotten extremely lucky over the years, which is, is, I'm, I'm sure is a factor to some degree um, and kind of been able to do that over and over and over again over the course of the years and, and end up kind of um, being, being right uh, far more times than not. In fact, I would actually argue the majority of times. Um, but I, I also, 
I personally believe that that's actually one of my strengths. I certainly have a many weaknesses, <laughs> um, as I'm sure I'm sure a lot of other people would attest to. Uh, but I, I do believe that that's actually one of my strengths, and I also believe that uh, it's one of the reasons why Star City Games has actually been able to continually like reinvent itself in many areas of our business over the years and and have those have those things end up succeeding the majority of those times got it so let's talk about that i mean you set up a business in roanoke and it sounds like it was initially comic book related so tell me how that evolved uh so we were we were mostly doing comic books and non-sport cards that were kind of that were based on comic book characters and stuff uh we weren't doing sports cards at all and it it was it was fun it was it was a different type of experience i got to like i got to work with my parents who i've always had a really good relationship with and it was it was literally just the three of us and and it was it was a lot of fun and then at some point and i'm not i'm not sure if that came first or if the magic stuff, if Earth magic came first. Um, but at some point I discovered eBay and I don't write, again, I don't remember which thing came first, but at some point I discovered eBay and that was when things kind of got really crazy because I was, I, I discovered it very early on when there was a fairly sizable audience that was already using it, but not a lot of competition as far as selling stuff goes. And I had accumulated so much inventory over all my years of doing uh, as a show dealer and then as a promoter that was also a dealer. So I just kind of began pulling all this stuff out of storage. And then all of a sudden I had a global platform on which I could sell it. And I was just blown away because stuff that like I, stuff that I actually just felt like had no, there was no market for, such as like, for example, I had a accumulated a ton of original comic book art that back in the day I was you were able to buy it for like just a couple dollars a page um and and I I I bought a ton of that not so much like not as an investment or not because I was a a collector I bought it because I had artists that were coming to my shows and I bought it from them as a way to ensure that they always had a good show so like I, I, I would go over to their table, they would have this giant stack of art out for like $3 a page or whatever, whatever it was, $5 a page. And I would just buy a, a whole pile of it from them at their, full, at their asking price. And it always ensured that those artists actually, it was worth it for them having done my shows, which made it easy for me to, or much easier for me to get artists in the future because they knew that it wasn't going to be like attending my show wasn't going to be a waste of their time. It was going to be worth it. So you were doing a, you were doing a helpful thing for them, but then you suddenly you realize you're sitting on a lot of very valuable stuff. <laughs> well, I mean, like years that actually passed and it really wasn't that valuable, but like, you know, all of a sudden, like now there's eBay and I've got this global market and right. where I can sell to. And obviously like there's way more interest you know, like, I mean, the, these artists would show up at these events and these events, I would have a thousand people come to one of these comic book shows, but like, there's not a lot of people that were going through these piles of art and, and saying, oh yeah, sure. Like I'll buy this page for $5 and I'll buy that page for five. Like that was happening, but it was happening on a very small scale. Um, but all of a sudden, like now that 
you know, you fast forward like five years and all of a sudden there's this global platform. Like now all of a sudden you're, you're able to offer that piece of art to the entire world and every single one of them, just because of the nature of what it is, that there's only one, there's only one of those original pieces for every single page. And it only takes, because eBay is an, an auction platform, of course, it only takes two people to be interested in a page for that price to get bid up to some crazy amount. And like, you know, at the time, like a crazy amount might've been $50. But when I had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these pages that I had just kind of bought and then just put up, like that I had bought, like literally just to help the artist out. And then I had put them up or whatever, you know, like now it's years later and eBay all of a sudden exists. And like now this stuff's selling for, you know, like 40, you could sell it for like 40 or $50 a page. Um, and then the same thing happened with all sorts of other stuff that I had accumulated over the years too, where like there just wasn't a market for it at a, or the market for it at the local level was so small, but when you all of a sudden you had a global market that you could advertise to, it was just a complete game changer. Like eBay was my introduction to the, the internet as a tool for the business. Uh, and obviously like that would, that would, I mean, we're still doing eBay to this day, but um, like, obviously like that would over time kind of expand to become Star City Games and then kind of to, to become what Star City Games is, is today. But at, at some point, uh, the way that we actually got into magic at that time was, it's actually a, a really, a pretty funny story, or at least I think it is. So we had, we had these four kids like I guess there was a bowling alley next door. And I guess these these kids were just hanging out at the bowling alley after school. And they would cut they came down to the store. And if I had like if I had to bet money on it, I would have bet that these four kids didn't have a dollar to spend between the four of them. And they they asked if we had if we had any magic cards. And I said, no, I'm sorry, we don't. And then the next day, these four kids came back again and they're like, hey, any chance you got in any magic cards? And I'm, you know, and I said, no, again, sorry. And then the next day they came in again and they're like, how about today? And I said, no, it's not something that that we carry, um, you know, but I'll, I'll look into it. And I kind of just said that because there were tons of kids that came to the store and would ask about stuff with no intention of ever actually buying it. So I was kind of used to it. And I just said, you know, like, I'll, I'll go ahead and look into it but not really intending to like actively try to seek it out. Um, you know, like if I happen to come across it, that would have been the extent of my looking into it. Um, but then the next day they came in again and I'm like, okay. Um, Cause they came in and they said, Hey, did you have any luck? And, and so I, I was like, okay, so now I'm actually going to try and see if I can look into this. And so I looked into it. I told them, I told them, no, I didn't get a chance to do it yet, but I, but I, I will do it today. And so I, I looked into it. I found somebody that had some, uh, or that had a box. I think it was revised at the time. And it was also selling for a premium because, because everything was at that time, because magic was just, the demand was just so far outstripping the supply. And so uh, I went ahead and ordered the box and then the kids came in and, and I ordered it fully expecting me to get the box in and then the kids that come in and then me to say, hey, I finally got those magic cards in. And then they were, you know, for them to have some reason to not actually end up buying any of it was what I was expecting. But yeah, because they only had a dollar probably between the four of them. So 
you know, what are the chances? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ex- well, I, I would soon find out just how wrong I was. So, uh, and, and, you know, I, I mean, I, again, like I wasn't, uh, I, if there's one thing, I mean, there's many things I've learned over the years, but one thing I've definitely learned over the years is that, is that you can never judge a book by its cover because a lot of times the people who have the most money are the ones that look like they're dead broke. Mm. Um, okay. And, and so, uh, so the kids come in the next day and I'm like, Hey, I've got that box ordered. It's on the way. It should be here soon. And then the kids come in again the following day and they're like, is it here yet? And I'm like, Nope, uh, it's, it's on the way. It should be here soon. And they come in the next day. And again, it's the exact same thing. So then they finally come in and I'm like, guys, great news. The box came in. Uh, I've got it out for sale. You know, just so you know, if there's anything, if there's any packs that you're interested in, uh, like this is how much they cost, but that's just based on what it cost me to buy the box, blah, blah, blah. And they like, I think the price was like $8 or $10 a pack, whatever it was. But I swear that price could have been $50 and they would have still just sat there and bought every single pack in that box, which is exactly what they did. And so, wow. yeah, that was the nineties. It was a lot of money back then, I guess still is, but I mean, yeah. Absolutely. What, what really blew me away about this and, and just kind of like, I just, I, I was, I was there, like I was there selling them the packs, but it just was so surreal that it kind of just felt like this can't really be happening right now because just, this is, like, how can this possibly be real life? But what was happening was, was it wasn't like the four kids were each like throwing $10 up on the counter and saying, give me a pack. And then they were all just opening their packs. What was happening is that the four kids were basically throwing a single $10 bill on the counter and saying, let us get another one. We would sell them one pack. And then the four of them were standing around in a circle and opening the pack together and they were just ooing and aahing at every single card they saw and talking about like, oh, this would be, this would be awesome. And this would beat your this. And, you know, right. this is going Yeah. It wasn't like the sports cards where you just like, you know, did, did I find the chase card in there? But they were like looking over every single card and like, there's that addictiveness quality, right? Like, oh, let me get another pack because you don't know what's in the next pack kind of thing. For, for sure. But what was, what was kind of just blowing me away is that like, I had never really seen like, like teenagers express that level of excitement over anything that I had ever sold in all my years in the industry. At oh, that point. I like, see. Well, I see. Or even non-sport cards, which I kind of viewed as being the equivalent of what these magic cards were. Like I never saw people actually uh, just kind of behave that way and just be so genuinely excited like as they're fanning through the pack looking at the next card and they're just all you know and all four of them are just mesmerized that they they just i just i really just can't even describe it it was just so incredible and then those kids sat those kids stood there and they did that and until that entire box was gone and then i and afterwards i was like wow, like there's, there's really something to this. I need to look, I need to look into this game a lot more. And, and that was, that was what got us into carrying magic. So tell me how that expanded. I mean, from that moment where you realized this was a, 
an extremely hot product. I mean, what 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 happened next? Or I, I don't know. I don't know the time frame. Like you can go like next couple of years or like next couple of months. But like from that, yeah. We we kind of we we really kind of lucked into sort of like a a perfect storm where at some point and I again like I'm forgetting the exact time frames, but you know like we we just started gradually carrying more and more magic and then as the word spread that we had stuff and we started doing single cards which like even common cards were something that people were just like the fact that you could actually buy cards individually even though you were just buying a common card was something that people were super excited about and so like we started carrying that stuff a lot more but i mean like even like even at a point where where our inventory was as robust as it had ever been at at that time it's still like a backpack dealer nowadays probably has more stuff than we had at that time because the stuff was just that hard to get and um it's just there's so much more of it out there now than than there was at that time but um at some point we kind of just that there was that perfect storm where magic and 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 magic's uh, like popularity kind of intersected with the emergence of the internet and things like eBay. And so between those two, between those two things, like we didn't actually start doing magic on eBay, on, on eBay or doing magic on the internet initially, but between those two things, like our business kind of went from being a, you know, like we were just a, a comic book store where we would have, you know, like a, a very manageable number of, of in-store, in-person customers over the course of the day to like, now all of a sudden, like we're both like, like my entire family is just from sun up to sun down. It's just like, I'm hustling, selling all this stuff on eBay. And my parents are hustling, just trying to keep up with the demand for all of these magic cards on top of everything that we're doing. And then we moved across the street. We we bought a. We went from renting an 800 square foot space to to buying a much much larger building, and then when we did that, we we just gradually started hot or we started um, getting more into magic and looking into having an online presence to start buying, selling, and trading this stuff online. And the funny thing is, <clears throat> excuse me is that one of those four kids that used to come in the store that kind of got us into magic ended up being one of the first people that we hired to work with us when we started doing online sales. Oh, very cool. Yeah. And so, and so then like things just kind of grew from, from, from that point. And, you know, like I just kind of, I was wired the way that I was and I kind of just, I kind of just did things the way that I did. And I just, I don't like, I don't half-ass anything that I do. And if I'm going to do something, I just give it a hundred percent. And, and I just started uh, just really hustling and just buying and selling and trading the magic cards. And it just kind of became more and more and more of, of the primary thing that I did. And then our online sales just started growing. And the more that it grew, the more that, you know, the more that I would kind of do what I was doing and, and uh, you know, we just we started expanding and and hiring people. And I think back in those days, like at some point, like Wizards of the Coast started running 
pro tour events or either that or I started attending pro tour events. I forget what it, what it was, but I started attending those events as a as a, a dealer. And like I was always the first dealer to, to open and I was always the last dealer to close. And I just would go to these events like with a suit, like an empty suitcase and a bunch of money. And I would come home with a full suitcase and no money. And some of the dealers that that I was, you know, that was around at that time at those events are still around. It's it's interesting to hear your your recollections, Pete, because um I, I was on the totally on the other side because I was really just a, a kid and a player growing up. Like my brother and I found magic through revised edition. Like it was just, we were in a, I was still in Canada at the time. We were just in a hobby store and we saw the, um, I don't know if you remember this, but it was the revised like two player starter set. It was like a big deck max deck master box. It had the, yeah. the life counters in them and the little rule book. And first we saw all the all the singles at the store selling. We're like, that's way too expensive. We can't we can't afford those cards. So let's just buy the two-player set, which I think was still very reasonable at the time. It was like $30 Canadian, which is pretty close to, to US dollars. Um, and let's just try that. And that's that's how we started. But we we totally didn't like do competitive play, my brother and I. Like we didn't go to these um events or the pro tours. Like I was reading about them in the duelist and like like scry and these magazines at the time i mean it was still kind of pre-internet right so um i guess the question here is like what's it like to be a dealer what was it like to be a dealer back then because i feel like people have such a better understanding of it now in 2022 there's so much knowledge and literature now but like in the 90s what was it like because i can see that as a player or even at yeah as a player it was very much like a wild, wild west where Wizards was trying to, to figure everything out, right? Like competitive play, designing the cards, distributing the cards is a big problem for them. Like, uh, like Atkinson had to like, as I read later, he had to go around and like bank places to carry it until there. It was so popular that he didn't have to do that anymore. Like, well, as a dealer, like, what was it like in the nineties? I, I loved it. Like that. Back in the time that I'm talking about, like I was actually the the only person buying cards for our company, and I was, I, I mean, I was, I'm, I've always, I'm, I was wired the same way that I've always been, um, you know, like I, I would go to an event, like I said, I, I would, I'd be the first one to show up, the last one to leave, and I, there were a lot of times when. I would just in talking to the other vendors, you know, like the vendors would talk amongst each other, like um, about how good of how good or, or bad of an event it was. And I would hear what these other vendors were saying. And then I would just be like, wow, I, I, I think that me sitting here by myself, um, I think I may have actually bought and or sold more than every one of these other vendors combined. Um, but it, like it, it didn't surprise me because the entire time I just never stopped working. Um, and a lot of times these other vendors were just, they would just huddle around each other's tables and just get into conversations because there was nobody at their, their booths. But what they didn't realize was that if somebody comes by and they see that you're not at your booth, then they're not likely to come over. <laughs> and so, you know, you would have like, there'd be four vendors there and three of them would just be huddled around talking to each other. And I would actually be sitting there buying cards off of somebody so then like somebody else who wanted to sell cards would just go get in line behind that other person. 
I can't say with 100% certainty that I, you know, that I actually was buying or selling more than all of those other vendors combined at some of those events. But from the conversations that we had, it sure seemed that way. I think it's your work ethic because like, it just sounds like you're just always putting your head down to, to work, right? Like, it's just, if, if somebody has a wake, if you have a waking minute, like you'll just try to try to get to work. Right. And, and maybe, and other people can, and that's just like, it's just math. Like it just adds up over time, right. <laughs> Incrementally or otherwise. Yeah. It's a, it's a combination of things too, because um, so like back in the, back in those days and when you actually like, so, so I'm not going to go into name names, but I mean, some of like some of the vendors that I'm thinking of, especially some of the ones that are still around uh, are not the types of people that I'm about to, to talk about, but there were definitely like vendors within the magic space that were similar to the types of vendors I talked about before in the comic book show space uh, where they didn't, they, they didn't think of things like they, they were only kind of focused on um and and this would I'm trying to I'm trying to think of the best way to to phrase this. So th- like they they didn't have a a long term mentality, but that's I don't even know if that's the right phrase for what it is that I'm trying to say because okay, let me back up. There were there were a lot of times back in the day when I would overhear conversations amongst other vendors where one of the vendors would be bragging about how they had kind of just quote unquote, ripped somebody off or kind of screwed somebody or something like that. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking to myself, like you, you don't realize how, how stupid, like you think you're actually getting an advantage over somebody, but you're actually most likely just screwing yourself and costing yourself money because what's going to happen is, is that if that player goes back to his friend and basically like talks about what they just sold you or talks about what they just bought off of you. And then the friend points out to him like, Hey, I think that person like ripped you off and then convinces that person that they, that the vendor actually kind of screwed them somehow. Then that person is going to go tell all their other friends. And then not only is that person never going to do business with you again, but they're going to tell all their friends and their friends aren't going to do business with you either. So like, you may have think you may think that you actually got one over on somebody, but you literally just just screwed yourself. And like I just I couldn't wrap my head around how like how can you actually be? And these vendors, a lot of them were very smart individuals. I'm like, how can you actually be so smart and so dumb at the same time? And so I think one of the other reasons why I was so successful vending at those events is because, and this is a philosophy that that I've kind of passed down to all the buyers that I've hired, and then they've passed it down to, to other buyers and so on and so on, is that you don't always, you don't always necessarily have to be paying the most for something because there's no way to, like, you literally can't always be the person who's paying the highest. You don't even know what other people are offering, and there's no way to know what that is for every single card. So, you don't have to be selling something the cheapest. You don't have to be buying it for the most amount of money, but it's super important that if somebody comes up and does business with you in any capacity, you they they have to walk away believing that they were and feeling that they were treated fairly. Mm-hmm. And if if 
you know, like whether whether you buy a card for a dollar or maybe you end up buying the same card for a dollar fifty or or whatever, or or selling something for a dollar fifty versus a dollar. If the person feels like that, you treated them fairly, and and you're 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 always trying to actually do that. But as long as the person themselves doesn't have any reason to feel or believe that they were not treated fairly after the fact, that person is going to continue to come back to you over and over and over again and just keep doing business with you. So like to, 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 to intentionally try to get one over on somebody. So for example, like a very, a very common thing that I don't know with hundred percent certainty, but that I believe a lot of people used to do back in the day, and we're talking a long time ago is, is, you know, like they would, they would be going through a pile of cards that they're looking to buy and they would offer somebody like a dollar for a card. And the person would say, yeah, I'll take a dollar for that card. And then they would put it in a pile that they would later count up at 50 cents a card, stuff like that. Right. Just, just outright unethical stuff. Yeah. Out. Yeah. Just, and, and, and the, the thing is, is that, you know, like a, a lot of times it's kind of like cheating in magic itself as a game where mm-hmm. a lot of times something you it's it's hard to prove that the person was trying to screw you over because all they have to say is, oh, sorry, my bad or something along those lines. And there's no way that you can actually prove that what they did was an intentional yeah, it's act. It's very hard to prove that intention. There's also some sleight of hand stuff. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, yeah. There, 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 there's that, too. Although I think it was probably more the former, like in magic, it's probably a mixture of both as a, when you're playing. Um, but as, as a dealer, I think it's actually more the former where you kind of just, a lot of dealers would just like feign ignorance and then just say mm-hmm. my bad and correct the mistake. But if the person doesn't catch every single quote unquote mistake the person's making, then th- they just basically end up getting screwed. And I just, I could never wrap my head around people who actually thought that way. And not surprisingly, like almost every single vendor that I could think of that are the types of people that I am thinking of, like none of them are in the industry anymore. Yeah. And, you know, I think, I think you're very, the SCG is very consistent with what you're saying. Like, I know this word didn't really exist back in the nineties, but when I think about the brand and the SCG brand, like, I think it's a very it's a very strong one because people now, including myself, if I, if I go to SCG, I know that like SCG may not have the the lowest price, but it has like some of the best quality, like the, the grading of the cards, like the, the service of the cards. When I speak to SCG an SCG, someone at the SCG booth at a, at a, at a, at an event, I know their communication is very excellent. So it's it's kind of like the um, tough affair. Like SCG is very transparent, open with what they're going to buy and sell for. It may not be the price that I necessarily want or agree with all the time, but I know what I I know what I'm getting into. So I think that is um, that's something that's very consistent with what you're saying. Well, and I think I think a lot of the reason why that is, um, you know, like not to it's going to sound like I'm patting myself on the back, but I'm not, I actually, I, I mean more to compliment the, the, some like members of my team is that I've been very fortunate over the years to be able to find so many of the types of people that I was looking for 
to represent our brand. And so like when I say that, for example, like, like let's talk about a buyer, for example. What a lot of people would do is they would set out to try and find people who are the best buyers. And a lot of times the best buyers are exactly the kinds of people that I'm talking about, which is like they're they're so good at buying because a lot of times they're cutting corners and and doing stuff like that. And so like maybe their results may be better than than somebody else's. But I would never actually set out to find the people that that I consider to be the best buyers. What I would set out to do is I would find I would set out to find people who had a good work ethic, um, who were honest, who had a good reputation within the industry. If if they actually already had a reputation within the industry, um, you know, were were straight shooters, you know, didn't didn't do any of that type of stuff. And then I would try to hire those people, and then I would teach them, or one of my other people that I had previously taught would teach them how to buy, how we want them to buy cards. So it's more about their character really, or disposition first and foremost. And then you can always teach them the, the, the trade stuff later, right? Yes, ex- exactly. Because, because the types of qualities that I prioritize are ones that you actually can't teach. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think that the reason why, uh, the reason why we've been able to develop the type of brand that, that you just described is because we've we've managed to find so many people who are that type of person and then maybe they they already knew how to buy cards maybe they didn't maybe we they had they knew how to buy cards a certain way and maybe we had to teach them how to buy cards differently and maybe do it our way but at the end of the day we've been able to find so many people like that who kind of share that those same qualities and characteristics and 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 traits and and values and then teach them how to buy cards the way we want them to buy cards and kind of train them up that way. And so in the end, it doesn't matter. Like if you're at an event, if you come to an event and we have four buyers seated at a table, it doesn't matter which one you go to, like none, they're all going to treat you fairly. Right. Right. There's that consistency coming from SCG. I totally, totally feel that. Yeah. Yeah. And if, and if that wasn't the case, like if we had, like, let's say that we had three, we had three of the four buyers were that way. And then one of them was kind of sketchy and did things that were underhanded. Like it it doesn't matter the 75% that are, that are the way we want them to be. That doesn't matter. You would basically just, just be blasted on social media over and over and over again because of people who had dealt with that one. Exactly. Yeah. And I think the reason why a large part of the reason why our brand has kind of become what it is, is because like, we don't have that one. And if we, and if we make a mistake and we end up getting, and we end up believing that we do have that one, they get weeded out immediately. And, and, and we replace them with somebody who's the type of person that we're looking for. Although I can't think of a situation in which that's actually happened, but that's how we would handle it. Right. About SCG, Pete, I want to switch gears a little bit, and I want to t- I want to ask you about something that, when I think about SCG today, at least in the U.S., SCG has kind of become a household name when it comes to uh, tournaments and and tournament coverage, or or did for a very long time. Can you tell me how SCG got into the whole? SCG tour, or maybe it was maybe it was called something else before the SCG tour, but just you know, like how did SCG start to get into 
the tournament space and also and holding its own tournaments and then the coverage that followed after that. Tell me the story of that. So, so I, I definitely remember how we got into the tournament space and it was because uh, somebody in Kentucky, I think it was Brennan Moody, who was a, uh, who is a store owner in Kentucky and, and used to be like one of wizards, uh, uh, like larger event organizers. I'm not hundred percent sure that it was Brennan, but I think it was Brennan, but, but somebody in, uh, somebody in Kentucky ran an event called the Kentucky open. And I had never seen an event like this before. That was like just an independently organized event by somebody who just kind of took it upon themselves to do it. And the event was from what I recall, it was actually, it was either incredibly successful or, it was successful enough to pique my interest. And once that thought was kind of put into my head, I, I, I felt like, wow, if that, if that type of event can, can be that successful by somebody who like doesn't have, or most likely, I'm making an assumption, I may have actually been wrong, but by somebody who like doesn't have our platform, doesn't have our resources, how much potential does something like this have if it was actually done by somebody who has all those resources, who has one of the largest platforms within the space, like what, what is the potential for that? And then, so I forget the first event that we did. I want to say it was in Charlotte, but I'm not hundred percent sure, but, um, but we gave it a, we, we gave it a shot. And then I basically kind of just did with that what I do with everything. Like I, I just kind of how like, always looking at things, always analyzing things, always trying to figure out how can, okay, that was awesome. Now, how can we actually do this better next time? What year was that? The Charlotte event, the, the first one? I, I don't know. And I'm not even a hundred percent sure that it was, it was Charlotte. Um, but it was probably within a year of me seeing that Kentucky open and it may actually be easier to find out when that was. I mean, I could actually look it up in our records. I just don't have them handy. No worries. Yeah. It was, give me an idea though. Was it like in the 2010s or the 2000s or like what decade was it? Oh God. It's, it, it's, it's <laughs> they all gone so blurred over the years. Too many. I, events, right? yeah, I'm, I, I am so terrible when it comes to like remembering like years and stuff like that for, for when things actually happened. Uh-huh. Um, you know, it's like I was telling you before with the whole like eBay and magic thing at the store. Like I can't remember which one actually came first. Right. Assuming that 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 I'm correct that the organizer of that event was was Brennan and not somebody else, and I apologize if I'm mistaken about that. Uh, Brennan is uh, he's still around now. He uh, he owns a store in Kentucky. I'm, I think it's in the Louisville area, and he's just a fantastic guy. And it, it seems like his store. I've never actually been to a store personally, but I've seen um, I've seen pictures of it, and I've seen a lot of his social media posts and stuff, but we're friends on Facebook and he's, he's a, he's a great guy and runs a great store. So it's great that um, it's good to see that, you know, like he's one of the people that I'm talking about, like from back in the day who, you know, was one of the people who actually did things well, did things right. And is still around. Got it. And, And as you were talking, Pete, I just did a quick Google and it looks like there's an SCG article about from Adam Prozac winning the Kentucky open with, Blue Green Madness in 2003. So that implies that it must have been before 2003. So it's probably like early 2000s or something like that. Yeah, that that definitely sounds about right. Okay. The the other thing that um 
that enabled the open sea. And, they, and, and this, this will be a consistent theme across, you know, like there's many questions that you can ask me where my answer will involve some phrasing along the lines of what I'm about to say. But the, like at the time, the, what was the open series uh, and, and, you know, later became the SCG tour and now it is SCG con, none of that would have actually happened. Like, it doesn't matter what, like, it doesn't matter what my vision may have been or, or, you know, or what I, I think is possible versus what somebody else is doing. None of what ac actually has, has happened and none of what that actually grew into. Um, and this also kind of touches like on when we were running events for Wizards of the Coast, you know, like we ran Grand Prix for them and like they would say, OK, like, you know, you're uh, Star City, you're going to run Grand Prix Richmond, you know, like this just this random city in Virginia compared to all these other major cities that in which Grand Prix are being hosted. And it's like, OK, how can we make Grand Prix Richmond the best event that we can possibly make it into? And the end result was like at the time, it literally we we had 4300 people in the main event by itself and it ended up being the largest grand prix ever um and then i think that was later broken by the the grand prix that we ran in new jersey which which god i don't even remember how many people. i was there i got the brainstorm play mat the the it was a legacy yeah. grand prix i i still remember yeah. that very fondly yes <laughs> and do you do you remember how crazy that event was at the time it was insane. Just the hype, like the anticipation. I, so I was actually already living in China at that time. So I actually flew to the U.S. Like that was the first time I was in New Jersey um, just to play in that Grand Prix, just to give you an idea. Yeah. And so and so so where I'm going with this, I kind of got a little sidetracked with the Grand Prix. Is stuff. that you're all in with like these events like you don't you don't half ass it. So it's like it, whatever opportunities there just make it the best it can be right okay so so there is that but but i actually describe it a different way which i'll get to in a second like over the years we've been extremely fortunate to be able to hire so many of what i consider to be the best people in the industry when it comes to um you know like in, like every aspect of these events and you know like it we couldn't do what we do these events wouldn't be what they what they are my vision for these events would not be possible if we didn't have so many incredibly talented people that actually made like were physically on site running those events and making those events possible. Um, so we've been extremely and actually doing all, all this a lot of the stuff behind the scenes as well, a lot of the pre-event and post-event planning. So like we've just been so incredibly fortunate to just have so many good people on our team when it comes to that. And when you combine all of these things together, it's just it's just a recipe for success. And the way that I describe it, coming back to, to what you were just saying, is that the way that I describe um, like the, the, our approach to events is that we create incredible experiences and then we make sure everybody knows it, knows about, the, about what's happening. And, and if you look back at whether it's something like Grand Prix Richmond or Grand Prix New Jersey, or honestly, any Grand Prix that we ever ran for Wizards, Grand Prix, Charlotte Grand Prix London like you know like when we ran when we ran a Grand Prix in Charlotte uh like we were the reason Grand Prix Charlotte was the reason why Wizards of the Coast uh like um stopped allowing registrations on the morning of the event 
because in Charlotte, we had 800 people that had not pre-registered that showed up the morning of the event to play in the event, which basically like took that event from something like 2000 people to 2,800 people required us to like literally empty the entire hall so that we could add more tables and chairs and then bring everybody back into the hall. That event was the catalyst for Wizards actually doing away with morning of registrations, which I think is funny. But everyone, like it's, 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 it's my philosophy as far as my approach to the events go. And the same thing applies to the SCG con events that we're doing now. Um, you know, which we're kind of, we're applying a lot of that same like Grand Prix approach to, like when we were doing the SCG tour, um, it was a very different approach because with the SCG tour, every event was basically cookie cutter except for the main event format. And so like we were still trying to run the best event possible, of course, but the experience that you were getting at every event was just very similar from event to event. It was just largely cookie cutter. With SCG Con and what we're doing now, it's more it's more in line with how we used to do Grand Prix, where a much larger part of the event is actually just kind of being completely redesigned from event to event. And there's there's there there are some elements of it that are cookie cutter, like the command zone and infinite challenge packages and stuff like that. But a, there's a lot more parts of the event that are unique to each event. And so we're applying that same philosophy to those events that we used to apply to Grand Prix, which is we're creating all of these event experiences that are that are as good as each one can be, or at least that we believe are as good as they can be on an individual level. And then we're just making sure we're utilizing all of our, like all of the, um, like the, the, the full power of our, of our incredibly talented marketing team and all of the the access to different platforms and stuff that we have available to make sure that everybody actually knows that this awesome experience is happening. And if you can actually execute those two things successfully, like you are going to have an incredible event. You're 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 going to get a great turnout at whatever it and this and it doesn't just apply to magic. You could apply that same that same um, philosophy to any type of event. If you can successfully execute those two things, create the great experience, make sure everyone knows about it and gets excited about it, you are going to have a great event no matter what type of event you're running. Quite frankly, the SCG Con model just sounds, it sounds a lot harder to do, right? Because it's not cookie cutter. So you may have already explained this somewhere in your writing where SCG's communications, but like what was the main driver in wanting to almost like up the ante and, and make things harder for yourselves at SCG. Well, see, that's, that, that's a matter of perspective because what you, what you describe as make things harder for us, I view as exactly the same type of thing that I've been saying throughout this entire interview, which is we're basically always trying to raise the bar. We're always trying to look at what we were doing previously and figure out ways to make it better. Now, in the case of the, the most recent change from SCG Tour to SCG Con, the experience that we had with COVID played a significant role in that because what we realized was that when all of a sudden, uh, you, you know, so like for example, with the SCG Tour, we were actually running, like we were administering an entire organized play system that had all these moving parts from like store level events to 
the SCG tour events themselves. And then those would qualify you for an invitational. And then there's the players championship. And one of the things that we actually ran into with became glaringly uh, like one flaw with that model that became glaringly apparent during COVID is if all of a sudden something like that happens, how do you fulfill your obligations to everybody who has already achieved a certain type of milestone within that system? And so like, yeah, so, um, so we ran three or four uh, SEG tour events in the beginning of 2020, and then all of a sudden things had to shut down. So how do we reconcile the fact that we still have those players who are qualified for an invitational and uh, some players who are qualified for a players championship when by the time COVID actually ends, like what if we actually, like what if Wizards of the Coast changes something or just something about the anything, like what if anything changes that results in us like no longer believing that that's the best model to continue with, but like we still have to fulfill our obligations to people who qualified like a year ago or two years ago for these events, uh, you know, for an invitational, for a player's championship. And so like one of the things, so, you, so you're talking about things making things harder for us. And in some senses, the change actually did, but I would argue that we actually just, you know, we made changes that we believe just kind of raised the bar for what it is, the type of experience that we can actually offer. But it also made things a lot less difficult for us because like now with this new, with the, with the, the current SCG Con model, we no longer actually have to uh, like coordinate qualifiers at a store level, which actually, as it turns out, would be incredibly difficult to do nowadays anyway with Wizards of the Coast reintroducing that aspect into their own organized play model because now we would actually have to, have to we would have to coordinate all of those in-store events in a way that avoided not just our larger events, but Wizards larger events and everything that Wizards is doing in-store at this point. So that would actually be really, really difficult to do. But then on top of that, we no longer actually have to administer. And this was one of the, the, the things that I specifically wanted to be a part of the change was I didn't want to have to be responsible for administering an entire organized play system anymore because that there, there's too many moving parts with that. That's something that Wizards of the Coast is much better suited uh, to do. And it's just, it's not something that uh, it's not something that I felt actually aligned with what it was that I that I was wanting to do, and so like we 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 went you know, we made the changes that we made we moved to this SCG Con model, and like I mean obviously we only have three events under our belt so far, but so far like the, it like things are exceeding our expectations in basically just about every way possible, and all three of those events that we've done so far have set records. For uh, for unique attendance or unique attendance within a particular city, like every single one of them has set some sort of of record. I can't guarantee that that will continue, obviously, but I do expect that the events are actually only going to continue to improve. And improve doesn't actually mean get bigger. Improve may actually just mean get better. Uh, but there's there's just a lot of opportunities that are available to us with this with our current model that were things were opportunities that weren't really available to us before or if they were available to us 
we were the the model itself just kind of hamstrung us from being able to do what we wanted or or take advantage of those opportunities to the degree that we now can. Absolutely. I think a lot of what you're saying is also just evolution, right? And just understanding the world around you or the magic world around us and just adapting, right? Because you mentioned COVID and the organized play system. And like, I, I think I think this is a really good example of just SCG being a bit ahead of the curve in terms of like understanding what's what's coming. And, and I, I agree with you fully, like the the SCG cons so far have been a smashing success. Like everybody I've talked to or everything that I've read has been very complimentary. My question here is when you make these kind of big changes, right? Whether it's organized play for SCG or something else that SCG does, how much of it is driven from your own vision and maybe your gut and your experience versus what the SCG team or employees or people advising you say to you? How do you make your big strategic business decisions is the question. Okay. So like, let's like using the events as an example, a lot of times, so there, there's a lot of times when a member of my team will actually have an idea that I think is really good. We end up implementing it. It ends up being incredibly successful. Obviously sometimes that happens and the event ends up not working, but that could very easily happen to an idea that I had myself just as well as it could happen to them, you know? And so a lot of times you don't know, uh, you don't know whether things are going to succeed or fail until you try. And things are always like, I always kind of look at everything as if it's like a constant work in progress. Like I, I, I never feel like something is actually done and okay. Like now we can kind of like, wipe, you know, like kind of dust off our hands and then just kind of rest on our laurels and coast. Like I'm always looking for ways to, to improve the event experience, uh, you know, like in, like improve whatever metrics, you know, whatever metrics it is that we're seeking to improve, kind of take things to another level if like when possible, do things that, um, you know, like some people, like some people may actually just not be able to, like some things that may just kind of be so outside of what people are used to, but like six months from, from the time we start doing it, it just is actually, that's the way it's done now. Did I answer your question? Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of what SCG does ends up becoming the norm because like you guys are basically creating or being shaping the, the magic industry and also the magic competitive space. I guess what I'm wondering is more like a, an organizational question, right? You've got a lot of smart people on the SCG payroll they have some great ideas. Like I'm, I, I guess I'm just kind of wondering, like, how does what's a week in the life of Pete look like? Like, do you have like lots of meetings where people like advise you on ideas or pitch you on ideas? Like, yeah, it's more like kind of a inside the actor studio uh, or inside baseball on on SCG question uh, from your perspective. Are you are you James Lipton? <laughs> I, I share the same first name, but no, no, I'm not James Lipton. Okay. <laughs> So like what will happen a lot of times is, so, so let's say with, um, again, like, like talking in, in terms of events. So a lot of times like the, the, the overarching like big picture type of change will, a lot of times those, those things will actually come from me. Like this, this is what I wanna do. 
and I'm, I'm always happy to have conversations about things, but a lot of times by the time I've actually like said to my team, like, this is a change that I want to make, I've thought things through and I've done a lot of research on it. And I'm pretty sure that I've actually kind of weighed the pros versus the cons and that, um, you know, like um, reasons to not implement the change. Odds are I've probably thought of most of them, but but obviously, um, you know, like nobody can think of everything. And, and I'm sure that every time this happens, there's always at least one thing that I didn't think of. But most of that type of stuff actually the wanting to like put invitationals in like we used to take our invitationals to different cities the idea of wanting to all of a sudden make a change and put all start putting all of our invitationals in roanoke specifically because the experience that we can offer attendees if we're hosting the event in our own town by leveraging all the connections that we have locally um you know to be able to do things like a pre-event gathering at this restaurant and you know like these hotels do all these like special things for our attendees if they stay at those hotels. So like we have such a such a great relationship with with some of the hotels here in town that you know like for one for one reason I say recent but god it's been a couple of years at this point because of covid. But for one SEG con event like literally every single room in the hotel the complimentary water bottles that that you see when you walk into your hotel room the hotel took it upon themselves without us asking them to do it to brand every every single one of those water bottles with a welcome to SCG con label and and like they they took it upon themselves to make a cake saying like welcome SCG con attendees and had it available to people that were showing up in the lobby that type of stuff only happens because we have such a good relationship with that hotel like we don't even have to think to ask them to do that kind of stuff they understand our needs like to that level to where they're able to just proactively just do these things, some of which we ask for, most of which we don't. And it just makes the experience so much better for everybody who's actually coming into town for that event. And so that seemed like a really weird decision at the time to a lot of people. Like, you know, previously you were going to Las Vegas and Atlanta and Indianapolis. And now all of a sudden you're saying all of your flagship events are going to be in Roanoke, Virginia. But the first time we did that, it was the most heavily attended SCG event we had ever run. It was nothing but people talking about, I mean, obviously people were talking about magic, but so many people were talking about and posting pictures. And, you know, it's like, here they are all at this place doing karaoke. And then, you know, and it's the same thing for all those events. Like, you know, there was one event where a bunch of our, our guests actually ordered pizzas, a bunch of pizzas from a place that specializes in making pizzas that are like literally like three feet by three feet or some ridiculous size. And they, they use those oversized pizza boxes to make a fort in the lobby of the hotel. And the hotel let them do that because they knew they were our people. And so like, and everybody at the hotel was just, you know, like we're going to make sure these people all have a great time, and so you had a bunch of the, a bunch of, like that just became a big thing, like where all of our guests were posting on social media about the pizza four, and and it kind of just became this thing that, like obviously that kind of stuff can happen at any event of this type, but you know like would the hotel have like if this was in Indianapolis, like would the hotel have allowed them to do that? I I don't know, May, maybe they would have, but. But I know that because this was the hotel that we have that that close relationship with from having worked with them so many times here locally, 
that they just didn't care what our what our attendees did. They just want to make sure they had a great time. And so they, they just went above, they just go above and beyond for all of the, for all of our attendees. And then I just kind of see stuff posted on social media about it, or I hear stories about it afterwards. And that's the kind of thing that like, like now take something like that and then multiply it times 50. And that's why we put those events in Roanoke instead of Indianapolis. But it doesn't make sense to anybody until they actually experience it. And then we were able to actually draw on a lot of the things that we learned from doing that to kind of take a lot of the things that people enjoyed about SCGCon that we could scale and then take that experience on the road and, and basically kind of give people uh, a lot. I don't want to say the best of both worlds, because obviously a lot of people would disagree with that, but give people a lot of what actually a, a lot of what they enjoyed about the SCG tour with a lot of the things that they enjoyed about SCG con and kind of put that together and try to design event experiences that appeal to a larger segment of the, the community and the player base. And, you know, I think so far I, I would argue that the, the, the results would seem to confirm that that was actually a, like that was actually, uh, I don't want to say the right call, but it was actually, it actually ended up being a, a, a good decision, or at least so far. But the, but the end result is that the, the, the bigger picture decisions are, are, you know, such as like one where we change from an SCG tour model to an SCG con model. Those are, are, are usually coming from me, but then all of the things about those events that make them unique, a lot of that is actually coming from different members of my team. And again, I think they actually do a great job and that those events wouldn't be what they are without their contributions. Why don't we just get to the big question, Pete? There's a lot, there's been a lot of feedback or reactions to the community about some of the recent decisions that Star City Games made in terms of one of the upcoming SCG cons, which I believe is SCG Syracuse. So yeah. I want to give you an opportunity to address that. What do you want to say about that whole situation and the statements? Just what comes to mind for you? This is really your opportunity to, to say what you want to say directly to the community. Sure, absolutely. And I, and I appreciate that opportunity. But the, fir the, the first thing, before I kind of get into that, James, the first thing I'm going to want to clarify here is something that I hear come up all the time. Uh, it, when when discussing the quote unquote magic community, and I I want to I guess clarify exactly what it is that you're when you when you when you're referring to the magic quote unquote community, I want to clarify like who exactly you're referring to because when when I hear that term kind of tossed around, it what people what seems like it's often the case is that the is that when people use the term community. They're specifically talking about Magic Twitter uh, or other online social media platforms, but it's almost always Twitter. And so I, I wanted to, just before I kind of get into things, clarify that, that when you're saying the community, you're specifically talking about Twitter. Yes. I think a lot of what I'm referring to when I talk about community is a shorthand for Twitter. And I definitely understand that it's like saying Magic players, right? It's not one homogenous blob of people so i understand that 
there are certain, I'll say actors or users of Twitter that are more vocal than others. So yes, to answer your question, that's what it, that's, that's what I'm referring to. Okay, cool. But, but um, I, I, this is tricky because I, I think this is, I don't want to describe it as being a, a bit of a trap. And obviously like, that's not my, my intention, but no, actually, I'm sorry. It was the correct phrase that I was thinking of. So I, I think that the trap that so many people fall into it when they're discussing the magic community, but they're at, they're specifically talking about magic Twitter, um, is that they they kind of fall into this trap where they mistakenly start believing that what you see the this you know maybe it's like somewhere between fifty and a hundred uh, very active. Uh, members of of the community who who are very extremely active on on Twitter, what you see them saying is actually indicative of the 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 much much larger magic community as a whole. And I think that's that's a mistake that a lot of people fall into because what I've actually found in my experience is that even though uh, the 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 members of the magic community who seem to be the most vocal on Twitter, like obviously they're their opinions are, are, you know, like just as, you know, carry just as much weight on and are just as important as anybody else's. But it's just that those voices represent such an incredibly small but vocal segment of the community that I think that, um, I think that basing your, your feedback or, or, or basing your thoughts on an announcement or a decision on what you see that extremely small minority of the community saying on Twitter as being indicative of the magic community, the actual magic community as a whole. Uh, I just think, I, I think that's a mistake. And I think it's a mistake that a lot of people, it's very easy to kind of fall into that trap as I was trying to describe it as before. And I just, I think that's a mistake. Um, I know that we've done that in the past. I know Wizards of the Coast has done that in the past. And I understand why. I think it's actually just a very normal thing to do, but, I just, I just kind of want to state for the record that I think that if, if you, like if we make an announcement or a better, a better example would be if Wizards of the Coast makes an announcement and then you go look at Twitter and you see 50 people who are just all kind of putting Wizards of the Coast on blast and saying that their decision is the worst decision ever and blah, blah, blah. It's really easy to kind of get a sense of, oh my God, like, you know, we've made this, this, this terrible decision like the whole quote-unquote community is upset or outraged and we should go back and reverse our decision right away or you know or or whatever and I think a lot of times and see now here I'm kind of starting to get to, to get a bit um to get a bit rambly again and I and I apologize but uh I just I I think that's a mistake because I think that what like I said even though I do think that they have um, you know, like I, I do value their feedback. Uh, what I've just seen happen so many times over and over and over again is what that gen like what that initial reaction on a platform like Twitter was initially, whether it's to a decision that Wizards announced or to something that we announced or to, to any number of things. Um, like when that when that decision or when the thing that was announced is actually put into effect or or, or implemented. Uh, what you actually see is 
the community responds in the exact opposite way as you would have been, as, as you were, may have been initially led to believe based on what you were just seeing on Twitter. And I, I like, I think that makes perfect sense. Like, a lot, like from what I've seen, uh, in most cases, when somebody agrees with something that you announce or something that you're like a decision that you've made, they tend to not go on social media and say, I agree with this. They only tend to go onto social media and post when it's something that they don't agree with uh, or are pretending to not to be outraged over, which is something I'll kind of get to in a second. Um, and then the other thing that I see happen a lot is you know, you'll have a bunch of people who are saying this decision was terrible, and then you will have somebody who will jump in and say, hey, hey, wait a minute, you know, like, uh, like, here are some reasons why I think this decision may not be that bad. And if you just kind of step in with a decision that just goes against what, what that, uh, those other like handful of people are, are yelling about on, on Twitter, then those people will just kind of immediately turn on you and they'll essentially just bully you out of bully you out of the discussion and then so then other people see this and then they don't chime in if they disagree as well and the it, the feedback just becomes very homogenized and you end up just creating this echo chamber that may or may not actually be reflective of what the actual community thinks about something i think you've made a good description of the faults of twitter the mob mentality this applies to a lot of different topics not just scg announcements obviously but let's, let's address the issue head on. Let's address the issue head on. The issue is that SG has made an announcement about whether there should or should not be vaccination requirements for a particular event. And let's just take the Twitter, the Twitter power users feedback out of it for one second. Let's just address the issue. When it comes to this decision, what do you want to say? Because you have an opportunity now to address people specifically, what do you want to say about that? Uh, what I, I mean, what I could say is that there's, um, there's, there's six members of my team and they're the exact same, they're the exact same six people who have made all of these types of decisions uh, to date. You know, previously all six of us were on the exact same, same page that it made sense to have the health and safety protocols that we had in place. And at this point when we sat down and we said, "Hey, let's let's revisit this and reevaluate this for Syracuse." Um, you know, a, a discussion ensued, and you ended up with all six of those people now unanimously agreeing that it just really no longer made sense to continue having the policy that we had in place uh, previously continue to be the policy. Now, is that because of inconsistencies with the what's going on in the state? Is it because uh, it would help create a, a higher turnout. Like, I just want to have a sense of what are the issues or rationale that go into such a decision? Again, taking Twitter out of it, just, let's just address the issue head on. Well, I, I, James, the, the problem is, is that I, I, I don't think that you can actually take Twitter out of it. And, and the reason why, and, and we can either discuss this now, or I'll be happy to come back to it after we kind of you know, talk more about the question that you're specifically asking me is that you have, there's, there's a small, a small handful of people that are, that are people that you, that you previously described as being like Twitter power users, uh, for lack of a better phrase. And there's a small handful of them that are, 
they're they're they dislike SCG or for whatever reason they're 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 very anti-SCG uh, or they're friends with some of those people. Um, and and this very small group of people, and, and this is extremely consistent when uh, you know, when we make announcements or if we make this even the slightest misstep, uh, it's this, it's this same group of people who is just right there. They're continually trying to instigate drama. Um, like they're misrepresenting what actually happened in a situation in whichever way actually reflects the the worst on us. They'll, you know, like I was saying before, like if we make even the slightest misstep, they'll pretend to be like overly outraged about the decision or the announcements in a way that is just completely inconsistent with other things that they've said. And then the other, uh, like their, their, their own actions, um, like the, or they'll outright lie about us and then they'll just continually perpetuate the lies. or they'll try to get like online mobs to come at us. Like you said before, um, or they'll, they'll, they'll try to hold us to a, like what I consider to be a completely disingenuous standard that they literally don't hold anyone else, including themselves to. And like, while doing all these things, they'll, they'll basically like, they'll try to portray themselves as being, um, like as being morally virtuous in order to to justify the way that they're acting, but the way that they're acting is basically just like complete assholes, for lack of a better word, and like they're 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 basically just acting like bullies, and and like that's what these people are, and this behavior and this behavior, like I mean we have just seen it over and over and over and over again, and it's just. Um, like I don't I, like I can't really speak to their motivations, but it's so it's so di it, it's so blatantly disingenuous and like clearly performative, and I, I think that that's actually a large part of the problem. And I'm I'll be happy to kind of go down that rabbit hole. Yeah, I mean it's clear that there may be certain people with access to grind because I have. From what I have read, I haven't participated in it, but what I have read is that there's been people who previously worked for SCG just come out and say, you know, I I don't even want to repeat what they're saying, but I understand that sort of pitchforks and axe to grind sort of thing. I totally get that. I think Twitter is in a lot of ways a game, right? It's a it's a signaling game. It's you know, you're going to get a lot more responses if you say something that's an 11 out of 10 as opposed to a more nuanced sort of statement. But again, let me go back to let me go back to the issue at hand. Is it just when you say standards, is that is that the standards for events that are being held in in New York State? Like what? Let me um, let me elaborate on on a broader scale. So when I'm and and I'll, I'll I'll answer both things at the same time. So when I'm when I'm talking about uh, like these what I what I consider to be bad faith actors, um, for lack of a better term, um, when I when I talk about the disingenuousness and the, the performative nature of their of their what I consider to be completely fake outrage. Um, over over this particular issue, why the reason there's a couple there's there's actually many reasons why I, I 
believe that to be the case. Um, one of which is that a, a ton of other events that are extremely similar to ours uh, had, had previously made uh, similar health and safety updates uh, or had made um, or, or had updated their health and safety protocols to where they were going to require vaccinations or negative COVID tests, but no longer require masks. And, and these are events that are actually happening like one or two months before the event that we announced. And they're like none of the same group of, like none of these same people have been critical of any of those events at all. Like you had, like last weekend, for example, you had the Flesh and Blood Pro Tour uh, in the TCG Pro Tour in New Jersey, where like there were tons and tons of magic, uh, like members of the magic community at that event, including many very active members of of um, of magic Twitter. Uh, they were at that event, but but there was no criticism that I really saw online at all of the fact that they had a mask requirement, but they had no vac vaccination or negative COVID test requirement. But you that same weekend, you have Wizards of the Coast first. Uh, organized play partnership event with uh, the, the DreamHack convention organization happening in Dallas. And that event is going to be much, much larger than our Command Fest is going to be. And that event has a vaccination requirement, but, but they don't have a mask requirement at that event. And yet there's been, there's been no outrage at all over that event uh, and, and th that event's policies. And I don't understand why, because they're, the, the, the people that are being critical of our policies, they're criticizing an event that happens, that's happening a month and a half, or I'm sorry, a month, a month after those other events, event, those other events happen. So then you have another uh, organizer, and I'm not, I'm not going to, well, you have, you have another organizer who's announcing, or who um, uh, announced the, they're another organizer who's running a command fest event. And if you go to their website, they have their health and safety section, like says they like they have no vaccination uh, requirement. They have no negative COVID test requirement and they have no mask requirement. They have none of none of those things. And yet there's no there's no outrage from the same group of people about that event and that events lack of policy is so you know, so, and, and then, I mean, I can go on and on. Like, I mean, the number of, the number of similar events to, to ours, and in many cases, ones that are actually much larger, like the list just actually goes on and on. But like the, the only, the only event that this group of people really kind of came after. And then obviously like once, like once they kind of just are continually like amplifying the signal and making sure that it's, um it's being discussed in the worst way possible. And, and you know it's kind of continually in everybody's face uh, ha has been our event, and I just I when I see that I like it's really it's really difficult for me to conclude anything else that when you look at the when you look at the group of people and you see it's the exact same group of people that reacts this way to everything like every misstep we make every announcement that could potentially be negatively perceived in any way. Um, like it's, it's literally just par for the course. Um, however, you know, like I, I, I will certainly admit that when, when this stuff kind of all blew up, I, my response to it, the way that I reacted to it was like, I definitely could have handled it better. But I mean, like I was, I was completely caught off guard by what happened because I, 
like even though I know like I know the way that this group of, of that this that these people um, kind of consistently look for those opportunities to try and come at us, I did not expect it to happen in this case because of how many other events had already been announced with policies that were either the exact same as ours um, or like the the vax requirement uh, in place, but the mask requirement removed or no or neither of those policies in place at all. And so it really caught me off guard when 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 everything kind of kind of blew up and all of that quote unquote outrage like was seemingly only directed at us and and so Pete, I'm gonna I'm gonna interrupt here and I'm gonna offer an alternative viewpoint that because I'm not as close to SCG, I don't have any stake in SCG, so I can only see from the outside. Uh, you brought up some other events, which I think this is this is kind of making me think. Okay, basically, let me distill it down to a question: Is it possible that perhaps the people that are vocal about or negative about what has recently happened or decisions as you make that they are making these statements for two reasons: one, because they are planning or they did want to go to the SCG event. And now they feel disappointed and are hoping that some sort of online influence could change the decision. And number two, it's because they care, right? Because if this is SCG, this is an event or a brand that they have a positive affinity for in the past. And so they wouldn't have this outrage if it was like James Sue announced we're going to have a magic tournament and there are the requirements are a b and c right it, i could you not see the alternative that it's because they care i mean you could argue that yes they're signaling or they're acting outraged but could it be also because they want to go to the events and they hope that they can influence you somehow no okay so i just just to clarify every, Yes, absolutely. And there's 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 a ton of people who have expressed these types of concerns and they're doing so in good faith and you know their feedback has been constructive and, and I agree with everything that you just said. What I'm specific what I'm specifically talking about is like like this is this is this is a very tricky position to be in because because so much of so much of the types of things that these bad actors have done in order to kind of try, in order to kind of direct all of this this outrage at and all of these genuine concerns in many cases at us what they're doing is they're they're uh like they're playing on people's emotions they're playing on people's fears and they're 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 acting in a way that if you like if you just look at the other things that they're posting on their own social media platforms and the other ways that they themselves are acting, it becomes so apparent that they're outraged, like the outrage that they're directing at us. And they're, you know, it's like typically the way that a lot of things work on social media is that something kind of kicks up and then the next day there's some other issue. And then the previous issue kind of gets forgotten about. But at, like throughout this entire time, it's been this same group of bad actors that kind of initially just kicked everything up to begin with and kind of just made sure everything was being reflected in the absolute worst way possible and that everything was only being directed at us and nobody else. 
And then as it started to kind of die down, they've gone back in and they've made sure to continue, like to make sure that it stays kind of getting kicked up uh, because it's really difficult. It, it's really difficult when somebody goes on to, to Twitter and says, uh, as as one of these people actually did, um, you know, like just just once, I'd like to see the the leader in the industry uh, uh, put the the health and safety of the players before money or something along those lines. And on the surface, that actually sounds like in like the uh, 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 like that sounds like it's coming from somebody who's extremely concerned. Uh, but then like literally, and I'm not even exaggerating here, it was literally the next day, that same person on that, on the same exact same social media platform on their, on their Twitter platform, again, uh, posted about how, how they had been invited to appear as a guest at this, at this huge uh, convention. And they were saying, hey, hope to see everybody there. Come say hi if you see me. And they're, and they're promoting this event that by, by that website's own forecast is predicted to be 10 to 15 times larger than our SCG Syracuse events or event. And so I went and looked at their health and safety policy and it's literally the exact same policy that we announced for Syracuse. So at that point, like it's just, in the case of this one individual, but the, but what you find is that as you look into the stuff, it's the same thing with all these people. It's it's they're they're on Twitter, pretending to be outraged over something that we're doing, but then you see them, like I mean, literally the next day you're promoting, uh, you're inviting people to come to an event that's going to be ten to fifteen times larger than than the one that you're all outraged about. And then that event has the exact same health and safety policy as ours, you know, and, and you're saying that you're personally attending that event. Like, I mean, how concerned are you really about, uh, you know, like the, like these types of policies? Okay. So let's, let's shift the conversation. What are people saying about the event or not saying about the event outside of Twitter? Because let's not focus on individuals because you just basically told me that there are certain people that are just out to get SCG and that's coming across loud and clear. So what are people saying outside of that platform? Well, I mean, there, there's, there's obviously like this, this is this type of stuff. And it's been the exact same. It's been this way since events returned, no matter what your health and safety protocols are, you're going to have some people that agree with them and you're going to have some people that don't agree with them. And it's been that way it's been that way uh, the entire time. Uh, so like the SCG con events, all the SCG con events that we've run in, in uh, 2022 so far have, have had the same policies that we have in place for our upcoming commands fest. We've had the vaccination requirement. We've had the, um, we've had the, uh, the negative COVID test requirement. It was, it was either or, uh, and we've had, we've had, the mask policy in place, and 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 throughout that time, we've been we've had people who have been critical of one or the other, or all of it, or none of it, and 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 I understand that. Like it's just it, like a lot of it is actually just it, it's very. I don't want to say it's polarizing, but everyone like everyone has their own threshold for what they personally feel comfortable with, and you know, I mean, if you're if your personal level level of comfort, like mine, for example, like I would, I would be comfortable attending, like 
I would never have a policy at an event, at one of our events that I that I would that would make me personally uncomfortable in attending that event. Um, so that's why our policy was what it was previously. And and you know I'm not gonna, I'm not saying that that's why our policy is now, but our policy wouldn't be what it is now if the six members of our team uh, who were involved in making that decision were personally uncomfortable with attending one of those events themselves, and none of them were, and many of them will be at those events. So you're saying that, just to go back to what you said, you're saying that you and your team of six, you discuss this as a group, whether or not the policy is going to be X, Y, and Z. Like, I'm not even making a judgment on what you decided on, but it, there was consensus, you're saying, uh, amongst the, the group of six plus one, seven, that this is going to be what it is for, for Syracuse. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, and, and it, in, like, as, as I've tried to have some of these, some of these good faith discussions with some people, um, like some of, some of the, like, obviously, like a, a lot of people have genuine concerns and I, and I understand that, but I mean, if you, like the, the, the reality of the situation at, at this point, and this is not, you know, I mean, again, like some of these same people have tried to portray this change as like us being anti-vax. Pete, I'm trying to have a good faith discussion with you. I'm trying to get you to stop talking about the other people. Just talk to me. Like, tell me what is going into the decision. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. So let me, I, okay. So I apologize for kind of going back to that, but I, I wanted to preface what I was going to say is that, is that the decision that we made is not, is not, um, well, like we're not speaking to any of our positions on the effectiveness of any of the COVID vaccines. Like I'm personally triple vaxxed. I mean, like it, it has nothing to do with that. The, but the reality of the situation at this point is that you can be triple vaccinated and you can still have COVID. You can still transmit COVID. Uh, you can take a negative COVID test and you can, and you could show as being negative on that COVID test, but you could still actually, uh, you, you could still actually have COVID. And so those, those, those precautions, while I do, I do acknowledge that they do, you know, if you want to try to argue that like, well, is it safer to have those things in place or to not have those things in place? Yes, I don't, like I don't think anybody would argue that it's not it's not safer to some degree to have those things in place. But everybody needs to like at this point the the like it's largely like those those types of things are largely uh, creating like an illusion uh, of safety, and they're just largely uh, like what I what we would like what I, or not we I should say what I what I consider to be theater. And they're not, like, they're not actually effective at, like, having those things in place. It's not actually uh, effective at um, its intended purpose, which was to, which was to try and ensure that there was no spread of COVID within within a gathering like this. I get you. It's it's a it's for a personal safety. But it, it's not so much to do with spread because I think it's been widely documented that you can be triple, quadruple vaxxed and still get 
COVID, right? So it's an individual's decision whether they want to attend this, uh, attend an event at a space, right? Whether it's a concert, a sports event, a convention. I, so I'm with you on that. I'm with you on that. So that's, that's part of the rationale, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's what it ultimately comes down to. But that's what it's always come down to. It's always come down to, regardless of what our policy was previously versus what it is now, is if you, if you personally feel, if your personal threshold, if your personal level of comfort is attending this type of gathering, then, then we, we welcome you and we invite you to do so. But we also understand that whether the policy is what it was previously or the policy is, you know, like um, we have no mask requirement, but we have a vaccination requirement like uh, DreamHack is doing, or, you know, we have no policies in place whatsoever. Like it all comes down to the individual and what they're, what they're personally comfortable with. And we understand that some people aren't going to be comfortable with any decision that we make along these lines or any change that we make to our, our previous um, health and safety policies, but it just comes down to the individual person. And I think everyone just kind of has to make that decision for themselves. And to kind of go back to what I was saying before, you know, as I've had this type of discussion or I've tried to have this discussion with some people in good faith, um, what we've kind of run into is people will try to make the argument, well, yeah, but even if it's just actually making the event like 1% safer, then isn't it actually, like, isn't it worth doing? And the problem with that type of argument is that you could actually apply that argument to literally anything. Like an individual person, like if you are, if you choose to come to the event yourself um, and add one additional person to the room, like knowing that you could be vaccinated, but yet still have co potentially have COVID, potentially transmit COVID, then by you choosing to attend the event, you personally choosing to attend the event, then you, then you could argue that your, your doing so is potentially uh, like making the event less safe. And there's all sorts of other arguments that you can make there. And so like, if it was, you know, like this is, the, again, like this is not about, this is not, this has nothing to do with, um, you know, the, the, arguing the effectiveness of vaccines, which we're not doing at all. Um, it's not an anti-vaccine uh, position. It's just, you know, like we want to do, we want to do what is, like we want to do, the, we want our policies and the things that we're doing at our events to be things that actually are impactful and, and, and are making a difference and are actually, you know, trying to, to genuinely keep people, uh, you know, safe and healthy. And I think that we've actually done a pretty good job of it overall. But I, I mean, like, this is something that we're, we're really paying very close attention to. And we're not just, you know, we're not just like, we didn't just make this decision because, you know, we felt like making it like we, we made it for, for reasons. And we also, you know, like, we also looked at all the a lot of these other events and kind of saw what events have already been happening. Um, you know, like how have things kind of gone at those events? What's been our experience at the events that um, at the events that we've that we've run ourselves? And you know, we just felt like at this point it was just it, it, it just it just made sense to 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 make the change. Is there anything that you want to say about what's happened on the SCG Discord? I'm not personally on the Discord, but I have been seeing people 
some of the people whom I didn't want you to talk about, but I'm asking you to talk about now, they've been posting screenshots of some of the things that have been happening in the SCG Discord. And I think that was before SCG came out with uh, uh, a, another statement, right? So do you want to talk about that whole, can you talk about that whole, that whole journey? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You know, like our our Discord channel, uh, you know, usually receives, you know, usually has, a you know, X number of people posting in it. And then all of a sudden, when this stuff started happening, like it just got overwhelmed uh, with a, a, a lot more, a lot more traffic. And we didn't handle the situation as well as we could have. Like I'm the, uh, I'm, you know, like if I, if we're wrong about something, I have absolutely no problem admitting that we're wrong about it. We made mistakes in the way that we handled that. Uh, if we had to do it over again, we would handle it differently, but we've learned from it. And, you know, we'll, we'll hopefully be better about stuff like that in the future. But I mean, as you were saying, you know, I mean, the people, the same people I'm talking about are, you know, have, have been doing what they've been doing. What I have seen or, or just read about is just that SCG employees are instructed not to talk about this. And maybe that's fair. And it probably is fair because you have, SCG has made official statements and people should go back to that. But is there anything that you can say about that? Like, are people on your team instructed not to talk about it? Are they instructed to talk about it a certain way? I'm asking you because I think, I think maybe the screenshots might be taking things out of context as well. We don't know, or I don't know. So I'm asking. Well, so the, I mean, obviously, like, I can't speak for if somebody was, if somebody within a department was told something by a manager or something, and it's not 100% in line with our actual position on this type of stuff, like, I can't really speak to that. I, I would hope that that, that that wasn't the case. But I, I can, I can, I can tell you, uh, like, my position on this, and then also kind of just offer some, some additional clarification. So, the problem is, is that when you when you have an issue like this, that's that's one that I kind of consider a controversial issue or something that's kind of potentially blowing up that or I'm sorry, something that's kind of blowing up that, uh, you know, like potentially like negatively affects the company. It's really important that the messaging that is actually being be, being put out there on social media um, that it come from because basic because if anybody works for SCG and is known to be working for SCG, you run the risk of anything that somebody may say as being interpreted as being an official position from SCG when in fact we had no idea that that person was going to make that comment. So, so in these types of situations, like what we'll, what we will ask is to not is to please not discuss this kind of stuff unless you're one of the people that are actually involved in in the discussions and actually know like and actually are working with full information so that the information that's being put out there um, that's coming from it, like in a a, a known um, or, or like a source that people know is a is like an official source or could potentially be considered an official source is just is just accurate information. But well, like one thing that we've never done is we've never policed, um, or at least not that I can recall, uh, you know, tried to police people's personal social media accounts. I mean, 
you know, like if you want to, like your personal social media account is your personal social social media account, you know, and um, you know, I mean, we like we we can ask people to, you know, please not discuss this let, out of concerns that it would be misinterpreted as being from an official source. But I mean, like if somebody was to do so, and several of them have. Um, like there's not going to be any kind of repercussion against those people for doing so. I just wish they had not done so because of the potential problem it creates. Does that make sense? It does. And, uh, I'm, I'm going to try to put it in perspective, right? I, I, I think that in the end, I'll go back to the fact that I really believe that star city games, SUG is a good brand. It creates good events that people really want to go to and the flip side of what you've described with some of the twitter mob is that there's also a lot of people that are rooting for scg and they may feel frustrated right now just because they want to be on scg's side but this kind of issue becomes polarizing i hope you can understand that just by virtue of the fact that you're operating a business in the US and this has been a topic that has been discussed ad nauseum for the past two, three years. And I hope you can understand or you can, you can, you can sense that there are people that are really rooting for SCG and they do want SCG to come up with statements that are directly addressing what is going on. That That's my view. Well, and, and, I completely understand that. Then that makes complete sense. But the but the the problem that we ran into, and I mean, and this is in addition to the stuff that I was talking about earlier, which I'll try not to go back to. But the problem that we ran into is that you you make a it is polarizing, like you're saying. And if we if we announce this change, and this is pretty much actually what happened, regardless of of. I mean, regardless of, of how it ended up kind of blowing up the way that it, that it ended up blowing up. Um, but you, you say, we're doing X, and then somebody says, why? And then you answer that question, and then they just ask why again. And, and, they, and it just keeps going to where no matter what you say, they just keep saying, yeah, but why? Yeah, but why? Yeah, but why? And what they're ultimately in a lot of cases trying to do is like, they're not actually asking you that question in good faith. They're asking you that question because they know if you give them an answer, they're going to be able to attack that answer. So, so like, let me give you an example, an example. So one of the things that we did was we, you know, we, we looked into, um, you know, like we looked into what the current data was and we could have cited, we could have cited our sources in, in, in some of our statements, but the problem is, is that, and, and you've seen this all throughout, uh, like all throughout the entirety of the pandemic, is that you, somebody can cite one source and cite one set of data, and then somebody else could come along and cite something that directly contradicts that from an equally, or conflicts with that from a source that's considered to be equally as reliable. And so, and what we what what I was trying to avoid was I was trying to avoid this turning into what it turned into. Now, obviously, I I did not handle that situation 
as well as I could have, but a large part of what went into the decisions that we made as far as like how to how to handle a lot of this, not the decision itself, was based on like what we actually saw happening with a bunch of other events and how little response we actually saw to uh, the changes that those events had made to their health and safety policies. And you can say, um, you know, like, yeah, the, but, but, but SCG is different, but like these are events that are actually being hosted and run by the manufacturers of the game, which are like inf infinitely larger entities than SCG is. Um, you know, so, so it's not like you're comparing or it's not like we're comparing uh, like a local store's FNM to an SCG con event. You're talking about like, like the highest level of professional play that's being, that's being run and supported by the manufacturers of the game themselves. And if there's, if there's no outrage, if there's, if there, if those entities are not providing like this detailed explanation as to why they made changes to their policy, like there was just no expectation. I mean, I, I'm speaking for myself, like there was no, there was no expectation that there would be this type of response to our making a change for an event that was much further out than a lot of those other events that I just described. Like there was no way there was, I just didn't see that. I, I didn't see that, that coming at all, but I mean, to go back to what I was saying before, it's because I didn't account for, um, like I, I, I didn't account for the, disingenuous way some people tried to actually express concerns. Okay, again, let, let me uh, try to recenter the, the conversation here. What would be, Pete, what would be the drawback of SCG just saying we, have, we need to have a vaccination requirement? That must be part of the cost-benefit analysis, right? Let's take away what has happened in the past or today and moving forward, like what, what, does, it actually, what does it actually mean? Okay, well, okay, but it's not it's not a um, it's not a cost issue, which is something that I that I've seen some people try to portray it as as being like this was a decision that we made because removing this requirement will make us more money. Like we we fully expect that. Pete, I'm not trying to imply that. I think there's different there's different. So let me clarify because I, I again, yeah, I might have framed this in a in a bad way, but what I'm trying to frame it as is what is the flip side of if SCG just went ahead and said everybody attending the event needs to be vaccinated? If in an alternate universe where SCG did that for Syracuse, what goes into that decision? I, I don't understand. I think I've, I thought I've explained that already. You've explained it in terms of the, the vaccine efficacy or that's, that's what I'm interpreting. Are you, are you asking, like, what's the harm in just leaving the policy in place? Yes. And, and I understand asking this is really a leading question, but I, I, I really am trying to understand the situation. Yeah. I'll answer the question with another question, which is that it, if at some point you look at it, you look at all of the things that I've talked about previously, and you you come to the conclusion that having a policy in place is just no longer effective at its intended purpose. 
why would you just leave a policy in place in, perpetu in perpetuity if, it, if, it, if you believe that it really just no longer makes sense to have that policy in place? No, I'm asking you. I, 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 I'm genuinely curious as to what your answer would be to that question. My, my answer to that question is that a business like Magic or a business like the line of business that SCG is in, there's a lot of irrationality and there's a lot of things that SCG can do to consider PR, quite frankly, right? I think I th I'm not trying to have some sort of uh, argument about whether or not vaccines are effective or not, or whether or not these events should be. I think you've been very clear with saying that people can make their own decision, right? I, of course, we, all, we can all make free choices. There's a calculus of when I go to this event, does this event have the criteria that I, that I consider that I want to go to? If, if it does, great. If it doesn't, no harm, no foul. I, I think that's been very well established. I'm just saying that, or I'm just asking I guess my question of what's the harm in that is simply because it gets these people off your backs, people whom you've mentioned several times in our conversation. So clearly it impacts SCG in some way, at least it impacts you in some way. No, 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 no. Because, because now the question that you're asking is why not just reverse what you previously announced in order to, in order to, Get the get get the people that I've previously described as being as being bad actors who are pretending to be outraged over this issue, in, in order to get them to stop bullying us. And like the way that I I mean, here's how I would answer that that question, James. Um, so when I was in grade school, like so many other kids, I was bullied. Um, and I, like back then, I never stood up to those bullies because I always kind of felt that like not standing up to them just would somehow make me the, the bigger person. But as is so often the case, when you, when you don't stand, when, when you're being bullied by people and you don't stand up to those bullies and you don't let them know that their behavior is not acceptable, then you embolden them, you empower them, and you and the bullying actually often just gets worse. And so, I have no time. Like I have absolutely zero tolerance for bullies, and I would never, I would never make a business decision that I don't believe is the right business decision, in order to try and get bullies to please stop picking on us. If that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense because it's uh, it's kind of it can escalate or there can be a slope, right? Yeah, if not this, then what? What else? I I, I totally understand where you're coming from, Pete, on that. Like when you if you when you have conversations with people and forget the conversation that we're having here, but like when you have conversations with people about Magic Twitter, and I'm not talking when you have conversations with people about Magic Twitter. Almost every person you try to have that conversation with will describe quote unquote magic Twitter as being just incredibly toxic. And when they, when they describe magic Twitter as being toxic, quote unquote, the types of people that I was talking about before are exactly the types of people that make magic Twitter as toxic as it's perceived to be. And I'll say one more thing about this and I won't bring it up again, but they, they pretend to be 
morally virtuous, like they portray themselves as being morally virtuous and they are, it's phony, it's disingenuous and they are bullies. And I have no tolerance for bullies. I will, I will not tolerate, um, I will not tolerate bullies. So did I answer your question? Yeah, you did. Um, I, I don't actually, I don't think there's any more questions I have. I, I feel like that was, uh, well, James, let me, yeah, let, let, I, I apologize for interrupting, but let, let me ask you that question. You know, that, okay. So forget the specific people that I'm talking about, which I've not mentioned by name. Um, but let's just talk about the type of behavior that I'm talking about. And like, let's talk about it in terms of uh, the, the, the magic quote unquote community specifically on Twitter, or let's just talk about it in terms of magic Twitter. What are your thoughts on that? What are my thoughts about magic Twitter? No, what are your, what are your thoughts of, of members of the magic community that conduct themselves in that way? I basically just ignore them because I know that there's a silent yet impressionable majority that just kind of lurks. I think there are people that, that are like whom you've described and I've just learned to mute or block them and just, just move on. Like I, I've had a, I've had a business, um, a magic related business, a startup for quite a couple of years now, cardboard live. Uh, I have this podcast, uh, every once in a while I'll get something, someone come up in my feed in a certain way. And I just choose not to, not to respond to them because I, I just know that they're playing a game that I'm not interested in playing. They have their reasons. Um, I think for a lot of people, magic Twitter is a diversion. It's entertainment. I totally get that. And I see magic Twitter as kind of a, <laughs> kind of a necessary evil. It's like, I use it to promote some of the things I'm doing, but I also don't agree with, or how can anyone agree with hundred percent of any kind of discourse? So that's how I see it. Yeah, but would, would you also agree? So you're talking about things like the scale at which you're talking about things kind of almost sound like you're like you're talking about my personal Twitter account back in the day when I used to use it. Like if somebody was conducting themselves in this manner, I would just block them. Um, you know, it, it's real easy to deal with on a small scale. But when you have when you have people who are perceived to be like respected members of the magic community or like notable members of the magic community. And they're the ones that are acting this way. And um, like, they're the ones that are, that are supposed well, I'll, to I'll be back on that because um, I have two companies, StreamSage and cardboard live. We have our own company accounts. We have our own social accounts. There's more than one person in the company. And so we face not on the same scale as SCG, but we face these things as well. We've had, we've made, we haven't been 100% perfect in our decisions or our statements. And that's just, that's just par for the course. Yeah. So I, I would push back on that a little bit. It's not just me personally. I, I do represent a no, business no. with employees in it. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to imply that. Obviously, I'm familiar with your involvement with Cardboard Live. And you've got, and like, obviously, I know about this podcast as well. We're, we're recording it right now. Uh, but what I'm, what I'm talking about is when... When you have um, when you have a business that is being run on kind of like, um, for lack of a better phrase, like a much smaller scale than something like SCG, it's really it's really easy to 
just say that you would ignore these people. You would ignore if somebody is, you know, purposely lying about you, you would just disregard them. Like me personally, I would do the exact same thing. This kind of stuff, I know that it sounds like I've, um, like that this kind of stuff has like, it's gotten way under my, way more under my skin than it really has. But it actually, it actually hasn't because like on a personal level, like I said, I have, I have no tolerance for bullies. I have a very thick skin and, and I, I know how to deal with these types of people on a personal level. But when you're talking about a company and you're talking about a company that is responsible for the livelihoods of well over a hundred people and their families, and you have these bad faith actors that just continually like try to do things to actively harm your, your business and your company. And they know that they're not doing it in, in good faith. That's like, it's, and you know that they're not doing it in good faith. Like you can't just block them because the- well, that's not a, that's not a problem that you and I can solve. The, the president of the United no, no, States exactly. faces this problem. Um, any Absolutely. global figure bigger than you or I, or our businesses faces this problem. Like, this is not a this is not something that Amazon doesn't face or Microsoft doesn't face, Facebook doesn't face. It's not something that we can solve absolutely today. I, I totally get that. I totally get that. So what I was trying to do is simply to ask for your <laughs> point of view in this situation. I'm not I'm not asking you to solve anything. So please, like my role in this is to ask you the questions and you can take that as you will. So I, I I'm not trying to be argumentative with you. So and oh, I, no. yeah. But but James, I <laughs> I started this off by trying by flipping that back to you and 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 asking you that question because right. I was saying I, the question that I was asking is if you were in my situation and you saw this type of stuff yeah, happening, yeah, yeah no no I, I I totally understand where you're coming from Pete you asked me what I would do I'd say I move on and basically I ask you what you would do or what you want to say and you're effectively saying I'm moving on and and that and that's totally fair I'm not trying to uh, <laughs> I'm not trying to have this sort of uh, disingenuous conversation where I, I would do this, but I want you to do something different, right? I, I hope you're not under, I hope it's not coming across that way. No, not at all. I, I, I guess what I was more looking for is, is I guess I was more um, hoping that you would acknowledge that the way that, the, the way that this very small segment of, the, the, of Magic Twitter conducts themselves is unacceptable and and is bullying and is is let's say often let's not say always but often um you know disingenuous and performative and bullying and that we as a community as the larger magic community should have should not tolerate this type of behavior and should not allow this behavior to be viewed as acceptable. And I think that's something that that we can all agree on. Yeah, I, I do agree with you on that. To clarify what I was saying, I'm saying that that lack of tolerance for the bullies, that is something that is very difficult to address. And maybe this is just my own personality or just how I look at things personally through my worldview. But I think people who do that, eventually people will catch on to who they are, right? Because it's not going to be just you that notice the person says one thing and does something else the next day. 
other people see that. And the one thing that I've observed from this whole issue is that there are people who have come out and said, uh, people with uh, notable following saying, like, I don't agree with um, what that person said. And I think it's, it's great to have that both sides discussion, right? Uh, I mean, yes, but that's not really... That's not really the point that I was trying to make. I was the point I was trying to make is that, you know, like what what you'll see so many people claim is that, you know, like that this this um, you know that this community should have no tolerance for, uh, you know, like for for this type of behavior and. Uh, hey, Pete, you're preaching you're preaching to the choir. Do you do I think that magic? Twitter has double standards. Yes, absolutely. I, I don't, I'm not, I'm not in disagreement with you on that. I'm just saying that it's very difficult to prove at the risk of making this a tangent. It's very difficult to prove intent in people. And there's going to be people that are just influenced by people. And that's, that's the game. And you can either yep. be in the game and play it, or you can choose not to play it. And for me, I choose not to play it. I choose, I choose to use these platforms for different purposes to help myself, to help my business, to help listeners who may enjoy this podcast. And that's my lane and I'm sticking to it. I, I, I am definitely not trying to uh, put myself, I don't claim to have anywhere near the sort of bullying that SCG has experienced. I, I am I'm not, I, I don't think I could in a million years experience some of the things that your business has experienced. I, I, um, I'm sympathetic to, to the situation and situations, uh, but I, I can't speak for SEG, uh, which is why I just wanted to, I just wanted you to speak for SEG because you are, you represent SEG. Uh, yeah, sure. Fair enough. James, I, 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 I feel like it sounds like you and I are saying very different things, but at the, at like when push comes to shove, I, 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 believe that you agree with with the point no i don't want to give into bullies i don't want to give into bullies i was also bullied as a as a kid um i think that definitely shaped who i was growing up um we've had to make hard decisions as cbl or in different capacities over the years i am not trying to say that i am not trying to imply that anyone has anyone or any business has a perfect record i am far from perfect and I, I, yeah, I just wanted to have a conversation with you. Just kind of get inside your mind today and just understand yeah. where you're coming from. And that, that's, that's all great. I mean, this is, uh, it's about discourse. It's about the discourse, right? <laughs> so. Yeah, but I, and, and I also, I want to, I want to clarify that, you know, like I know I kind of keep coming back to this, but I, I want to reiterate this point that in all these, in, in all these discussions, all these times I've actually brought this up, I'm literally only talking about half a dozen people. Like the the overwhelming majority of the feedback that we've received, the criticism that we've received, I welcome all of that. And and the, the overwhelming majority of it has been constructive. I'm simply trying to point out because a lot of people, you're saying a lot of people actually just kind of see this for themselves. And I'm sure that it's true. Um, but I'm trying, I'm trying to acknowledge that these bad actors do exist within the community and it's very easy to actually confirm that they're 
like you're saying you can't prove motive, but in a lot of cases, like it's very easy to actually kind of show that their, their actions are performative. And I'm just trying to point out that this stuff does exist. And I'm, uh, I'm trying to stress that I think that we as a community need to, um, need to call it out when we actually see it and, and not tolerate this type of behavior, um, you know, or, or, you know, to sum it all up, just be better. I guess my, my biggest concern with trying to have this conversation is that I know that this problem has actually existed for a while. And I feel like I've actually kind of handled it the same way that I, that I handled bullying when I was a kid, which was I, I kind of just continually just tried to be the better person and not call these people out for the stuff that they're doing. And I'm still not actually calling them out for it. I didn't name a single person. And I, I only actually provided one specific example, even though I literally have a list of 20 in front of me. Um, you know, so, so when you're saying, you, when you're talking about how it's difficult to ascribe motive, I'm, I'm arguing like, like based on what I'm actually seeing, it's no, it's actually very easy to ascribe motive because, the, it, because they, it's so apparent in the things that they post, like I said, that one example, the person literally made that one post up like attacking us the one day and then like was at, like promoting an event that has the exact same policy the next day that's gonna be 10 to 15 times larger than ours. Like it's, when somebody's doing that, it's very easy to realize that the person's outrage is completely disingenuous and, and fake. A dozen events that are the same size of event or larger in our exact same space have or had already been announced and they were all changing their policies too. So like, as far as we're concerned, this wasn't a thing and we didn't want to like proactively make it into a thing and then have the conversation just de degenerate into a, a whole discussion on like vaccines versus not, va you know, like, because that's what all of these discussions actually degenerate into. And so we, we didn't expect this to actually be a thing. So we saw no reason to quote unquote, get ahead of it. But then this, all of this happened, which is why I kind of felt the need to, to kind of point that out, even though I, I also feel that there's really no good way to even, to, to even do that. Um, like, I, I feel like no matter what we do, it just ends up reflecting poorly on us um, because it, it has the potential to come across as like, this big company like picking on the little person, but in reality, it's exactly the opposite. It's that it's that you know they're the ones that are actually coming at us, and we're the ones that are ju have just been sitting here and taking it and just not not defended ourselves for for years at this point. And you know, like in, in this particular case, like they they have caused a lot of problems. They've, con they've caused a lot of my people to have to actually like deal with like issues that they shouldn't have realistically had to, to deal with. And they've caused a lot of undue stress and aggravation for a lot of my people. And like, this is what, like I take this stuff really personally. Like if, like I said, if you come at me, I can take whatever you can dish out. But if you come at if you come at SCG, and especially if you're doing it in a way that's disingenuous and performative and phony, and you're doing so is potentially harming the people whose livelihood livelihoods I'm responsible for, I take that really, really seriously. 
And I've tolerated that for way longer than I should. And I'm just not going to tolerate it anymore. These people like this type of behavior just needs to be called out where, wherever we see it. And I'm actually being a bit of a hypocrite at this point because I didn't call the people out. I spoke about them uh, generically and I spoke about their actions in somewhat vague terms that may or may not potentially be able to, to be linked back to them. Um, so, so I guess in that sense, I'm actually kind of being a bit of a hypocrite in the sense that I'm not, I'm not actually calling out the people themselves, but. I, no, I, I think just, you're doing the right thing, Pete. It's not about hypocrisy or, or not. It's really about taking the higher ground. And I, I think you've done it. I, I think you've done it right. Like don't, don't get, don't get dragged into the mud on this. Well, no, I, and, and. I'm not going to allow myself to, which is why I kind of handled the situation the way that I did. But I, I just think the, the, the time has come where, where the, like, I, like, I love this community. I'm incredibly passionate about the community, but the community is not this, this 50 or hundred people that just like live on social media 24 seven. And they think that Twitter is real life. Like that's not, the community, but that community just tolerates just so much absurdity from just a, ha a small handful of bad actors, both in this, it, both in the case that this, the instances that I'm talking about, and then in other areas within Magic Twitter as well that have nothing to do with us. And, and I just, I wish that I, I, like, I fully realize that this is just not the way that Twitter is designed and it actually is designed to reward this exact type of behavior. But I mean, what they're doing is is bullying. Like when I was a kid, it was physical and now it's digital. And I just would love to actually see the community just stand up and call this shit out and just say like, we're not, like this behavior is not acceptable and we're not gonna tolerate it anymore. And, and hopefully these people, like hopefully these people would actually, you know, just realize the way that they've actually been acting is just not acceptable and then change their behaviors and just kind of grow and improve as a person. Like ultimately that's what I would love to see happen. Like I'm not trying to, to come at them or, or cause, I'm not trying to do to them what they've been doing to us. So like, I, I genuinely want them to, to be better. I, I, I genuinely do. And I want them to kind of get their, get their shit together and kind of just, figure their lives out, you know, like, I, I, I just, I want the best for everybody. So Pete, what is the best place that people can find you on social or SCG on the internet? Oh God. Uh, so if, if anybody, if anybody ever wants to get a hold of me for any reason, including to provide constructive criticism uh, you are always welcome to email to email me directly at president at starcitygames.com. I I post my email address that comes directly to me. I post that all over the place, and I am always open and 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 welcome constructive criticism because ultimately what I'm I, I'm always looking to make things better. That's our ultimate goal. And so I and so if anybody wants to share some constructive criticism with me about any of the decisions that we make or that we've made or that we may make in the future uh, or, or provide me feedback or thoughts on anything for any reason, 
shooting me an email to president at starcityhames.com is going to be the best way to reach me. Uh, on social media, I, I'm old, so I utilize Facebook more than uh, more than just about any other platform. I will look at Twitter when we make announcements, like I was discussing before. Like I will look at Twitter to see what kind of feedback there is. Like typically on SCG Con event weekends, I'm following the hashtag to see how the events are going. Um, but otherwise, I try to avoid Twitter like the plague. Uh, for all of the reasons that I said before. It's not specific to magic. I think it's just a problem with the platform in general. And uh, starcitygames.com is the URL, I believe, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I would, I, I, God, I would love to have scg.com, but we've tried to, we've tried to buy it for years. And Oh, really? Somebody squatting on that or what? No. I, well, so somebody has it and they go from using it to not using it to using it again. <coughs> They're not, excuse me, they're not squatting on it. They're like, they have it for legitimate reasons, like related to their own businesses, uh, from what I recall, or their own business, from what I recall. Um, but they're just, they're, they're not willing to sell it. Uh, and even if they were like the, like the purchase price for a three character domain URL would, I can't even imagine how much that would cost, but like, we've not even been able to have that conversation. So Pete, it was a, a real pleasure getting a chance to sit down and talk with you today. I wish you an excellent rest of the, the evening where you are. Thank you, James. Where are you yourself currently? I'm in Shanghai, actually. Okay. Well, I wish you the same. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Humans of Magic. To support the show, visit humansofmagic.com, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at humansofmagic, and you can also consider supporting us at patreon.com slash humansofmagic. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.